Welcome to Mecha Nations, a critical analysis and rewatch podcast of all things Mecha. I'm one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox, and, and don't fuck with Kial. Kial wants blood. I'm Steven Hero. Lord Juno, what is a man? A miserable pile of... I'm just kidding. <laughs> and this is PMC Trilogy, and in this episode, Daigonzon really learns to row, row, fight the power. <laughs> That's good. Oh, no! So, uh, this may or may not become apparent as we as we continue today through through our journey into McGurk. But uh, I am completely exhausted. I'm and, sorry. And the reasoning for this will become clear once we get around to our Marin. But traditionally, PlayStation uh, uh, PMC trilogy uh, uh, will start us off. With yeah, some, I'm pretty some, tired too. I got some like Sunday afternoon like just lethargy. Mm, yeah, and no, I hear you. So I had a I had a mech filled week. I've been playing two mech games all this week. Uh, the first one, less eventful, Zone of the Enders, The Fist of Mars. <laughs> That's yes. the one I'm more curious about, though, to be honest. So it, it's interesting because it's one of those situations, and I think maybe we're more cognizant now as an adult. But, you know, there are certain developers who just get really good at a thing. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. then other people come along and said, hey, we want you to do our thing, you, do your thing, but with our license. With our flavor. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. the, probably the, the best example of this is Koei Tecmo, who just, like, throws out Moose Out games <laughs> like it's going out of style <laughs> exactly, for 20 sure. years. <laughs> and for um, some reason, it, 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 like, the, the Dynasty Warriors ones were allowed to just, like, rot on the gum and and for some reason everything that's not dynasty warriors those musou games are like great for some reason right and so in this case i'm talking about a different developer in a different series which is uh the developer winky soft which is not around anymore one of my favorites yeah right? but they were the developers i think a lot of a lot of the early super robot wars games sure, sure that sure. was kind of their thing they also did some other stuff they did what is, I think, regarded to be one of the best Transformers games of all time, which is the Japanese-only 2003 PlayStation 2 Transformers, which I think is referred to as like Transformers Assault, or people call it like the Takara Transformers. When people talk about really good Transformers games, Return of Cybertron's one, yes. yeah, Battle some, for Saturn, Platinum yeah. made one, Cell-Shaded, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah, Devastation, yep. yes. Yeah, that's regarded well, too. Uh, but anyway, so this is Zone of the Enders. But Super Robot Wars, basically. That's what it looked like when I and, saw it. And uh, and it's very playable. It's very you know it goes down easy. I think the the map design. When I play a strategy RPG, the thing I want more than anything else is a variety of scenario. If it's just going to be you know walk down these corridors and fight enemies over and over again, I get I can get real fatigued. That's what led me, in my opinion, to drop. Um, Sacred Stones, when I played that a few months back, was I, I felt like it was becoming too much of a slog. And I compare that to something like my my ideal and map variety for strategy RPG is probably Vandal Hearts. I think Vandal Hearts did a lot of really interesting things. Mm. And here, there's good map variety, but the issue is that the basic combat is really weird. I've never played a strategy RPG like this where you have these short um, real-time action sequences. So remember, this is a Game Boy Advance game. It's very Japanese. This is something that's way more popular in Japan, these sorts of cinematic... Yeah, of, yeah so yeah. You, you would, you know, so when you're attacking, you have, like, a crosshair on the screen, and you need to, like, m you know, press the button when you have the crosshair over the enemy that's just moving around on screen. And likewise, when you're being attacked, 
you have a crosshair that represents yourself, and you just need to avoid. Um, you, I mean, at this point, I just sort of circle the screen, and it's enough to to avoid any attacks. Uh, so it's you know, I would say it's not too too interesting, but again, it's digestible. I think the the writers and translators have successfully taken everything they they could learn from the first end of the enders and and, and you know implemented it as a a plot um it's fine it's very anime yeah i feel like zone of the enders as a property does not carry its the the stuff that's really appealing about it outside of the playstation 2 games i don't know what it is i don't know if there's something inherently kojima e inherently metal gear solid 2 e about those two PlayStation 2 games that just doesn't exist in any other Zone of the Enders thing. I'm thinking of Dorothy and I'm thinking of this. You know, that, that makes it hard to follow Zone of the Enders as a like. Uh, yeah, as like a media. Yeah, exactly. In franchise. Uh, I'll segue to the other game that I played, which I, I ended up being much more eventful for me. I played. Uh, and you, you are on a segue, so that's how you did it. That's true. Yes. Sorry. It's true. I'm on a segue. Uh, you might remember a few months back, I played a game called Kalik the DNA Imperative. <laughs> yes. Uh, which was a real, a real hell of a PlayStation One launch game. Is, is it is it Kalik or is it like a Kiliak? So I thought it was Kiliak. Uh, within the first game, Kalik, and also within this game, they do say the term Kalik out loud, sure. and they pronounce it that way. Okay. And true story, I posted. I usually don't put my my like full stream uh, videos onto my YouTube channel, but with Kalik, there was so there's one. One other let's play out there. So I said, okay, let me doing let, the Lord's work. Yeah, let me do the Lord's work here. Put out this other let's play. Maybe the people need more than one let's play of Kalik. Maybe they don't. And someone commented on the video. Like someone started commenting on it. Like they're like in a stream chat, which is always the most confusing thing on a YouTube video, <laughs> of course. Because <laughs> in the video, like when I hear the voice actor say Kalik in the video, I'm like, oh, they say it Kalik. I will say it Kalik now. But of course, before that... You're saying Kiliak. I was right. saying Kiliak. Right. And so this guy's like, hey, man, it's pronounced Kalik, right. not, you know... And I'm like, brother, <laughs> I I figured it out. Uh, I, I, I can hear. There. I can copy what other people say. In North America, the sequel to Kalik the DNA Imperative was released as epidemic just one word simple title as opposed to japan and europe where it was given its full title which i think i mentioned before is kalik the blood Two: reason and madness yes 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 i remember it's a now. real yes. japanese yeah, ass yeah. name right That's real good, good name and so uh this game had a lot more narrative content had a lot of cgi cutscenes that were very much 1996 playstation one cgi cutscenes. i think the the level design was more interesting you know you 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 came. You went through all these levels. There were cool secret areas. There were puzzles. There's a lot of puzzles. It's a first-person shooter, mech first-person shooter, but it's definitely one that uh, encourages and rewards a little bit exploration more than anything else. You know, they're really like, oh, did I solve this puzzle? Did I get through all these doors? There were destructible walls in this game, you know, which wasn't in the first one. There were, uh, you know, more interesting things. I ended up doing uh, a few speedruns. No one's ever tried to speedrun this. As I same as Kalik, there. There was only one Let's Play of this on YouTube, Epidemic. Same same person? Same person. <laughs> and uh, so I also did put mine up there as well. And uh, But I went, no one speedrun this. And so uh, I did, yesterday morning, I did a bunch of speedruns. Uh, my fourth finished run was sub-30. I, I think I, my first run was like 41-some minutes. And then a few more attempts, 
2930. I'm probably going to stop there because there's no real reason to push it. Sub 30 is pretty comfy, you know? Yeah. It seemed, uh, speaking of comfy, it seemed like a cozy game because I was watching some of your stream and it's really uh, just watching it kind of scratched my dungeon crawling instincts. Yeah. And itches. Oh, no, really? That's why I, I think when it comes to the exploration, because it has an auto map so you can fill in the map. So it's got that kind of Metroidvania dungeon crawler. If you like filling in maps and you don't mind a PlayStation 1 FPS game, because like, again, that that's rough edges for some people. Sure, sure. But if you can get around that and you just want to play a game where you can fill in a map and have some you know funny, janky cutscenes, this is a pretty good game. This is Kalik is an historical artifact that is to be admired as such. Epidemic is a playable game of the era, I right. think, in a way that uh, it's got Kalik a nice not- like low poly aesthetic. It reminds me a lot of the dungeons, of course, in something like Vagrant Story, but also like Mega Man Legends. Oh, so sure. if you would like to get lost in a dungeon, which, to be honest, I do, mm, it uh, yeah. appealed to me from a spectator's viewpoint. Yeah, no, definitely. And I was pleasantly surprised that I, when I went back and I was filling out all the maps so I could make images of the maps for my route, uh, I discovered secret areas I didn't discover on my first playthrough. And it was actually like, oh, wow, like you can actually, these four switches cause this room, these elevators to open, and then these elevators cause these machine guns to fire, and then you can get through. And, and I was actually, I was like, this scope is way beyond what I, what I thought the game would be about. Uh, so that was fun. That leaderboard, uh, did get approved because it had to be made. There was no leaderboard for Epidemic on speedrun.com, but it did get approved this morning. And cool. the thing is up there, and I had a lot of fun. I don't know what is next for me. Uh, it might be uh, Gundam Side Story 0079, Rise from the Ashes, Australia. Oh, the Dreamcast one. Yeah, the Dreamcast one. Uh, I discovered actually another speedrun for that that is much better than uh, what's out there. Uh, just, you know, I was just Googling around on YouTube. And then I also, I, I don't know if it'll be a speedrun, but I really kind of want to play 100-foot robot golf. Sure, of course. Uh, just, sure. Just... Oh, that's right. I that, bought that game. Yeah, uh, I, I have. I already win. have it on PS4. I kind of want to just get it on Steam. It's always easier just to play something in PC. And uh, and I mean, No Goblin is a good studio. Those those people are nice. I really don't want to be upset to give them extra money. Sure. Uh, and of course, it has the McElroy Brothers as the. Of do, you, course, do you need right. my uh, VR headset? It's, it's yours. If you I want actually, it. I do believe uh, we had a, a gathering several years ago, and I think I played it using your VR headset yeah. briefly. And it was, a, I mean, it's rudimentary VR, right? It just kind of, you know, it's just you're looking around. It's not too, too uh, three dimensional or Intensive, whatever. Sure. Um, but we'll see. It's gonna be, it's gonna be one of those. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I, I'm super indecisive recently. But yeah. Anyway, what's, uh, what's hot with you, gents? Now that I've verniated. Yeah. So I, I would say, uh, uh, Stephen Hero, if you've got anything to uh, discuss for the Marin, you should go first because mine is going to require a little bit of background in order to really explain um, what's going oh, yeah. on. Let's see. So I'm continuing. Most of this is just continuing from other, you know, other threads I was talking about earlier. Token Rajasthan sessions. I'm about. 70% through the game, maybe 60%. I'm at the point in the game where I just wanted to dungeon crawl, and the like internal lore does nothing for me, which is fine, but I find myself pressing A. Pre- I'm reading it. I, I'm, I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm reading the text, but it's washing over me. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, you know, we, I've reached the point where there is someone who I believe is a Fire Emblem Deep Cut. He is trying to resurrect a dragon in order to savage planet Earth, and... It's fine, but the tropes have gone as far as they can go, and the characters aren't developing anymore, and it's just, everything is very one-note. It's fine. I, I wish there was a way to, uh, uh, in podcast form, communicate uh, the moment where Steven Hero mentioned summoning a dragon, and I, and I slow-turned to PMC as he just, like, 
like pleaded to the heavens like why why is fire emblem this way why is there always a dragon <laughs> like, i mean why? the internal lore is again these uh these spiritual forces are trying to capture performa which is basically like the manifestation of creative energy i mean in this case and and this is why th- it, th- i mean first off it doesn't bother me in general because this is a I'm fine with it. As yeah. a Zelda fan, you get used to your recurring tropes. But the the in this particular case, because of what Effie is like doing, invoking, it makes sense that they're following these footsteps in this way, except it would be the step removed that uh uh what the hell is it called? Effie Sharpix keep wanting to call it because of the, the Fretzel name. Technically, uh, yeah. When I looked into it, technically is the official subtitle. That was the code name originally. But it, even though it's a strange name, it's easier to say. I just Tokyo, Tokyo Mirage, Mirage Sessions, Sessions is super you. generic. Tokyo yeah. Mirage Sessions, yes. I had that issue last time too. Um, but uh, you know, for me, the, the, it makes sense to like have it be like. I, I don't know what it is in this case. I, I a CEO of some kind of publishing company is like going to summon a. A shadow dragon with 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 publishing with like copyright law or something like that like that. I mean, I, I there's almost a part You're of me that's too like, far off, right? I, I, I that doesn't surprise me. Like that that's kind of the sort of situation you end up in. For example, in uh, the world ends with you. There's there's a couple of different strata of uh, authoritative figure to uh, cope with in the world ends with you in order you know to avoid getting into spoilers with with that game. Um, yeah, and- with the world ends with you, though. I was invested in the narrative. This, I'm just going through the motions, which again is fine. The uh, the real uh, hooks are the gameplay. The battle system is really good. It has okay. a nice rhythm to it. I was going to bring that up when when we were talking about strategy RPGs because I, I feel like when it comes to map variety and whether or not that like impacts your your enjoyment of the game. For me, I, I feel like this matters a lot more. I feel like I don't think about map design at all in a strategy RPG, and that if I am forced to think about map design in a strategy RPG, for me that like, and I'm I'm not saying this is a hard rule. For me that that's friction that I don't really want to. I'm not really that interested in in that part of navigating a strategy RPG. Where where strategy RPGs become interesting for me would be uh, cultivating a party of some kind, some kind of machine that works, navigating the mechanics of the individual members of that party, and, you know, the individual characteristics of of the characters. And and this is why I... This is... I'm, this is going to brand me on the podcast a little bit. This is why I don't really get with tactics a little bit. There's not really enough there there for me in tactics, even though it does have a good plot. Plot. Not We're talking about FFT? FFT. Okay. It yeah. does have a good plot... If, and, and well, yeah, the, the original version's rough. Well, and that's what I'm trying to it, it get to is that I'm not saying that there aren't characters in that game, but you're not really it, it, supposed to be. There isn't anything within the text of Final Fantasy Tactics that tells you that that ten millionth medic that you've spawned that you're going to make into your calculator is different than the other ones that you've made, right? And and for me, that's where it fails to hook, mm-hmm. right? And so for something like Super Robot Wars, um, or, or let's say, actually, let's say Sacred Stones, because that's the one you bounced off of. Um, what you're looking for there, because of the amount of sameness in the, the gameplay, is getting attached to either a mechanic hook, whether that's like, ah, Amelia, now that I've trained her up, is able to become a Great Knight, which is a new kind of class, and I just want to see what that sprite looks like. Um, and in the year of our Lord 2019, when you played it, like that's less of a 
a thrill. Yeah, right? I mean part like, of part of the thing in twenty nineteen or twenty nineteen or twenty twenty is that I can't remember when you played it. I thought that was last year. Yeah, I think but, it was. I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh-huh. But like you you bring up a good point, which is when I played Tactics Ogre or FFT as a kid, I was like, oh, I get to see what the progression of the sprites are. Right, like, that's really cool. Right. In you know, as an adult, when I really have to value my time, I'm playing the game with a chart of the classes. Right. And Or like, uh, you know, right now I could Google um, Fire Emblem 7 critical animations and see all of the critical animations in a, in a fun YouTube video that's probably less than like 15 minutes long. And, and like, that's not to say that some value has been removed from, from Fire Emblem, but certainly that sort of stuff is less of a like inherent like gets inherent sort of like, ah, yes, this is a hook. Um, Unless you like just mentally adjust yourself into that place. Um, So that's kind of where the more character focused ones work for me. Right. Because as as someone who's like Fire Emblem Three Houses, for example, even though mechanically that game can let you down, if you're someone who really wants a lot of feedback because of how customizable Three Houses is, um, and um, if you listen to waypoints, they actually get into this a little tiny bit. Um, but you, you really can't design levels to respond to the amount of customization that's going to be available to each player. You just can't. It's just not going to happen. Um, and and that's not necessarily a a strike against the game as much as it's just a result of mechanical choices, right? And and whether or not that's worth it is just up to the individual goals of the game, right? Um, so and and that sort of thing I think is this difference between something like your um what's that fucking sci-fi one? Um the aliens one. Oh, XCOM? XCOM, your yes. XCOMs and your Super Robot Wars, right? Like Super Robot Wars is not meant to be like XCOM where if you're too bold then you lose your favorite shotgun guy and and you know that sucks. <laughs> you're probably reloading. Um you know, if if the fucking Gal Gygar loses all of its HP, it's just, it'll be back the next mission, right? Like, and I think that that sort of split can determine how much you can stick to something like, you know, like Final Fantasy Tactics Advanced, I found easier to sort of glom onto because it has a more character focused story than regular Tactics does. Like, Tactics does have characters. This is something that can be difficult if you're not, if you don't really talk about narratives in this way. It can be sometimes confusing when people talk about, the plot versus the story versus the text versus the characters, mm. right? It can be, if you're not used to thinking about narrative construction in this way, these sound like synonyms a lot of the time, right? Do you mm-hmm. think that's unfair, Steven? No, I think you're correct. I could definitely see Final Fantasy Tactics, if you're in it for the story, you're more interested in the political machinations as opposed to machinations. Right. And there's as no opposed machinations to uh, maybe character arcs. Right. There's not a whole lot to that. I mean, there's one particular example I can think of in Tactics, but even that is not the focus of the story. A lot of the characters are disposable because they die quickly. Right. Or, or you know, and, it, and that's part of, again, not a critical problem that Tactics has. It's just one of those things that makes it not one of my favorites when we're talking about strategy RPGs, for yeah. example. I think Tactics Advance is often unfairly maligned. It's not my favorite, but I do... There's more meat on those bones, the narrative bones, than people give it credit for. Yeah, I think in general, there's something about... I think there's some psychological thing about a handheld game and what it's... Like, what it could possibly aim for, right? Or, or achieve, right? There's something that, that I think for, not for everybody, I think if you're, especially if, some, if you're someone who is, like, used to primarily getting handheld games, because those were comparatively cheaper, those easier to bring along for, for things like that. Um, 
you know, you, you especially in the GBA era, that's really when games... GBA was when, like, full-ass games were on handhelds. Like, there definitely were in the brick Game Boy era, right? Like, Pokemon came out in that. Um, fucking Link's Awakening is a regular-ass Game Boy game. Uh, Samus 2, or Metroid 2, you know. Um, but Game Boy Advance is when you started getting, like, Final Fantasy VI on a handheld device, mm-hmm. right? Like, anyway... I'm I'm glad that Effie Sharp is mechanically engaging. If it's not, if it's lost on its plot, it, the the plot's it's not too far up its own ass. Like my what I'm going to talk about Picard, it can be sometimes. Uh-huh. It's just not too in love with its own world building. But when there's just a bunch of some, there's a, there's a point where there's just a bunch of made up names about Performa and long dead dragons that I don't fucking care. <laughs> I don't fucking care at a certain point. It's but the like the main two characters Tsubasa and Itsuki their relationship as two growing uh, teenagers and they're coming closer together is very endearing even though it's it's trope heavy sometimes I bounce off the tropes but here I'm definitely for them I definitely wanted to talk to you today about young romance and tropes uh, mm-hmm. and we might return to that later Wait, um, real quick one note because I did mention Picard it's the Riker episode it's fantastic. It's it, seeing the two of them together on screen, particularly how Jonathan Frakes has aged with the role is fantastic. Again, I talked about Picard. Patrick Stewart's getting up there in the years. Can but, I, yeah, yeah, go can for I just say before you continue, um, I had some conversations with some folks who mm-hmm. had listened to some of your, your critiques of Picard. Oh. And, and, and uh, one particular person had to say that they think that you're... Uh, a, a, the, your description of Picard as a D&D campaign is very apt. Mm, yeah. uh, and, and they they definitely agreed with that observation. But they thought that with a little bit more... They were just not as hard on the performances in general, except for Sir Patrick. You know, Sir Patrick is fine for... Or not fine, good at what he's doing. Mm-hmm. But definitely they were they were not as hard on the performances. But anyway. Are they, they more interested... Are they more interested in these side characters than perhaps i am uh only the only the uh baby sword romulan mm-hmm. baby sword romulan is the only uh one that this particular uh person is is has really become attached to mm. as far as that goes i mean what i would say and you know what you should go ahead with what you were because I, I only have like thoughts based off of what I've, i haven't seen anything but the first episode yet still so. the, only, the great thing about this episode too is just to see the two of them on screen it's very reminiscent of the generation scene between shatner and picard which is it's a that's a star trek hallmark for me even though it might not be for other people i just really like to see the two of them together no matter how ham-fisted it is right and i'm not even really too like um like in uh a big like uh, original Star Trek fan, like uh, Shatner's all right, but just to see the two of them together and like philosophically work through some things and just I don't know the slow life feels of the the uh, what's it called the ribbon when they're oh stuck in, yeah. yeah the Nexus yes yeah and there's a lot of that here and the two of them just the back and forth you're just enveloped in a nice warmth of two you know brothers returning and that's really endearing and fantastic yeah I I could see that I mean Jonathan Frakes is a great director uh, he's directed a bunch of Star Trek at this point and so he's probably comfortable there. Um, I think it's him and Marina Sirtis, right? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. So, that you know, this is a chemistry that they've been maintaining, right? Even after they've stopped playing those characters, like, they've been appearing as the performers of those characters for years and years and years. So, like, it's never left. So, I, I'm sure that, and especially in a show that is largely about, like, um, it, how the, the world has kind of gotten worse... A little bit over time, and it's largely due to a bunch of people trying to save face, it seems like. Um, and, you know, some general sorts of, like, it really seems to be, from what I'm little I've picked up from just, like, images and stuff like that, it really seems to be, like, 
focusing on this angle of like, oh, our, the members of the Enterprise were probably as enlightened as they sold us. Um, but very much the rest of the world was not as as much as as they seem to see, yeah. and 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 I'm not against that. I can okay. I I, I think that it is fair to say that rep- representing Utopia in in a medium that is driven on content, I'm sorry, conflict and friction is very difficult. It's very difficult to do that and to have it actually matter in the traditional way and and when you're going to do something like this project like it's not going to be it's going to be daring in some ways but not really in a like story way like you know for something that bothers me for example not bothers but it is in my mind when i consider the show and i'm sorry Stephen here if i'm chopping no i'm curious what you're gonna say um so um it's very clear that the the borg are going to matter a lot in this show. It seems like the cube that they're that we've been focusing on isn't specifically a Borg cube anymore. It seems like it's more like a Borg museum that some ex-Romulan Borgs are all working in under Hugh. Um, and it seems like with Seven of Nine and Picard, there's going to be some reckoning of, of ex-Borg types. XPs. Yeah, yeah I, there you go. I, I thought there was going to be a, a, a cutesy term. <laughs> Um, which I'm I'm okay with. I'm down on XBs. Um, I'm down on XBs being uh, kind of uh, thrown under the bus uh, because of something that's tangentially related with this other synth attack that happened on the Fist of Mars. And, uh, you know, there's... <laughs> um, uh, there's a, a sort of aspect to it that I understand. When you're making modern television... As much as I would have liked it to have been 10 episodes of basically nothing happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my ideal Star Trek. Like, uh, you know, um, I, I just think, you know, there's, that's just not the world we live in, right? We, we like It's prestige TV. I was, I was com- having a conversation with my older brother about the, the newest season. There's a new season of the animated Clone Wars television show. Um, and I haven't, I haven't bothered to check it out yet because I, I'm of the opinion that this this era of star wars is like thoroughly mined like i I don't really know what else you could do in the context of that show so if if you've never seen that show something that's like that the show is upfront about but uh people don't really talk about as far as i notice but i'm not super deep into star wars fandoms because no thank you um but um the a core concept of the clone wars show is dramatic irony Uh, it's they they play with it all the goddamn time in very clever often awesome ways sometimes ways that i'm getting sick of i'm very very tired of the show turning to palpatine when someone says a thing just so we can see his, his shitting like evil boner like that's fine um but uh <laughs> you know something that i was talking to my older brother about was how i wish this seventh season was a in-universe documentary of the events of the clone wars from the understanding of star wars characters i would really love to know what modern Star Wars society thinks of, because this is something that the, that the text is purposefully unclear about. And, and, you know, to a point that was like, uh, you could almost argue exploited in the sequel trilogy, right? Like the whole concept that the, the Jedi in the force awakens were like, like weird legends. Like it, the timing of that is weird. Right. And, and like, I can let it go. It's fine. Like it, it's not something that I'm going to get hung up on, but it is a, a weird thing. Yeah. Um, and, and like an easy way to deal with something like this would be to do something like 
an in-universe sort of like, oh, if, if it's like Star Wars NN or something, and it's some kind of like our like 60 minutes feature on the clone wars as understood by the, 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 you know, and that as so many storytelling possibilities, right? Like I would love to know what do people think about the dude, Anakin Skywalker, right? Like what do people think of that dude? Um, and this is the same thing with Star Trek. I think, I think Star Trek would benefit from an in universe like version of, it's story like I think if you were going to do like a utopic, that's what I would do, right? It's something to that effect, and maybe the other way you do it is a comedy thing. Maybe comedy is how you do it. I think it's it's. There's ha- that one animated show in the works. Yeah, I'm kind of excited about that. I am too. Um, you know, I, I saw a um big beefy uh, Bajoran dude as security, and I was like, wow, Bajorans don't usually come that big. They're they're usually pretty small, which I, I like. I like how Bajorans um Major Kira kicks people's asses who are like three times the size of her like consistently like it's just a thing she does so um but uh was there any other thoughts you wanted to share about picard not too much it's just nice to sometimes i feel like i'm drowning in lore and sometimes it's nice to just take a breath and actually interact with some of these characters whom i've loved for a while or some characters i'm just getting to know for the first time do you think the show is defensive about the fact that it is about uh generational franchise characters Let's say next generational franchise characters. I wouldn't say necessarily defensive. I just wish this could almost exist almost independent from the lore at times, because I feel like it has to always dot the I's and cross the T's. I I felt like Discovery was a little bit defensive about being like a like a flagship franchise car- carrying the banner sort of situation, and, and I feel this way about Picard, mm-hmm. too, with the amount of emphasis it's had on things that have... Like, that are brand new. Like, and I'm not saying this as a, like, oh, and they shouldn't do new things. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But, like, the the amount of it there is makes me feel like they really didn't want to be accused of, like, playing off of nostalgia, right? And, like, I don't know. I, I kind of wish they played off my nostalgia a little bit. Like, where's Captain Nog? You know, where's fucking... Like, you know, and then this is what I was getting to with... with um seven of nine and picard like they're they're really playing on their borg trauma and and i'm not saying that that they don't have it but you know who else had borg trauma benjamin cisco (laughs) the 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 captain of deep space nine the emissary (laughs) like it's it's just it's one of those things that like I, i get it right it can't be about every single thing that's been in star trek right it can't mention every tangentially related thing but i know all those things it's not the show's fault that I know all those things, but I do. And and I the show knows you do though. Like specifically, it's very like fact heavy. It wants to make sure that when you go back into the text, everything is as accurate as possible. But it's still and and I think this is the the, the, the like friction I'm trying to get at is that like there's no way to make up for that. Mm-hmm. It, there's no like constructed thing that's meant for public consumption that would satisfy those. Like it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't. It would, it would be like those um. Uh, 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 like whenever I think of adaptations that are, are a little bit too close to text, they, these aren't really. But the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings animated films, yeah. uh, like like to me, those are films that are too married, too literal to the text to really create something like good, good. 
you know, and, and that have been, there are Lord of the Rings people who are furious at me for suggesting that the films. Oh, I, I love job. when adaptations veer away from the text. It creates interesting conversation. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it usually cre- ends up with a, a better end product in the long run when you do that, but not always, you, yeah. you know, you, or it's just different. See Annihilation. Annihilation is a great example of that. Veered way off from what the Southern Reach trilogy became. Right. But, like both products are super worth your time. Yep. 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 Um, okay. Let us begin. Ignis. All right. So let me let me let me ask you guys something. How much experience do either of you boys have with Gachapon games? Only as a spectator. Only as a snide spectator. I mean, I think you know me, Ignis. I think you know that my my blood, and much in the same way that like the blood in the thing, yeah, jumps when there's heat near yeah, it. Yes, that's like my whole blo- my all my blood. So so <laughs> let me so let me explain because I didn't I, I didn't just jump into the grand blue fantasy hellhole like everyone else seems to be doing. Oh dear. Um, but uh, there is a a a game called Xenoblade Chronicles Two, uh, and Xenoblade Chronicles Two uh, is a sequel to Xenoblade Chronicles starring Shulk. Uh, this game has, doesn't have anything to do with that setting-ish, but that's a whole other thing. Um, the core mechanic of Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is that uh, you control main characters who are referred to as drivers. These drivers can bond with things called cores, and these cores contain blades. And these blades are kind of like stands, except they are... Full-on personalities are attached to or part of a literal weapon of some kind. These are usually designed by a myriad of different creators that have come on board to sort of put on this sort of menagerie of different character types that you can collect through the game. Um, Now, there are special character-based ones, and then there are more generic ones. Uh, Gameplay-wise, the character-based ones tend to have a more unified sort of build that you could focus on and the the less focused uh you know generic ones are you can often find really good ones like you can luck out and just get a mix that's strong but like they're a little bit just less interesting than your character ones so this game being made by monolith soft and a product of tetsuya takahashi uh, has a lot of that t- Takahashi flavor in it. It is very much a Xeno game. It, it has a lot of that stuff. Um, getting down to the uh, not good dungeon design, it, that's still there. Sorry. <laughs> Are there any um, jumping bits? Oh, yes. Um, it's an open world game. So this is Monolith Soft. Some people may or may not know uh, were the guys that were developing the tech behind Breath of the Wild's open world. Um, and Xenoblade Chronicles 2, it very much works on a lot of that same technology. It's not exactly the same. You're not going to be... It, the core mechanic is not like traversing the wilds in the same way it is in Breath of the Wilds, but the worlds are about that size, and you'll mm-hmm. be traversing them in various different ways. Um, some of the appeal of a Gachapon game is being able to collect a large menagerie of characters, and that's why you find these, like, assigned to, like, franchises, right? Like, Star Wars has a Gachapon game on your phone, uh, Marvel has Gachapon games on phone, uh, Fate very uh, famously has Grand Order, which is a Gachapon game. Um, uh, Fire Emblem Heroes, is that? Yeah, 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 that's a Gachapon game, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that can be appealing about a Gachapon game is when a, a character, especially if it's a character you like, um, is powerful and you get lucky and you get them early. There's a, there's a, 
it, it could be something that's kind of I would compare to like playing a game with a game shark about that, where you just get something or you luck out and um, find a strong early item that you just carry with you through most of the game. That like that feeling can be, you know, it can be fun. It's definitely a toxic evil feeling. But this is not why I'm exhausted here at our Machinations recording. Um, one of the blades that you can get in Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is Cosmos. I knew it. The main character of the Xenosaga series. Uh, PMC, uh, you may or may not remember. I do remember. I was about to ask you how long ago. How, Like, folks... Ignis and I at one time were, were roommates for a period of time. This was uh, a few years ago. And I can remember at the time, around the launch of Xenoblade Chronicles 2, I think. Yes. Uh, that this topic came up. And I believed it was unresolved at the time because it, you never... It was unresolved. Okay. I, I, okay. So I completed Xenoblade Chronicles 2 in its, in its entirety and failed to summon Cosmos uh, throughout the entire game. So the way it works is that you get cores and the cores have a random percentage of containing a, a rare blade um, based off of your luck stat and a bunch of other bullshit that happens behind the scenes. <laughs> um, and you could kind of think of them like Pokeballs that already have a Pokemon in them, basically. Mm. And there are three different kinds. There's there's common, there's rare, and there's legendary. And obviously you have a better chance of getting a, a rare blade with the legendary ones. So um, when... When I had finished uh, my first go-around with Xenoblade Chronicles 2, I had over 200 hours of gameplay in it just from trying to, <laughs> to farm the, the, the blades or the cores to get Cosmos. Now, recently, I had reason to return to Xenoblade Chronicles 2 for a New Game Plus run because I was playing through it with my partner. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been enjoying our time with it. Uh, but now, when I played it, I'm sure the technology existed, but I did not look it up. Um, when I was playing it back then, there was not really a, a huge realized strategy for farming these necessary items. Um, and now, in 2020, there are many, many resources you can turn to if you wanted to be... So this is a lot like any kind of like like end game, like ultimate weapon farming in a JRPG where... Sometimes you'll look up how you'll get started on a thing, and what you'll realize is that um, nerds are terrible at explaining how to get started at a thing, and assume you already have a lot of different things. And, and so you end up in a rabbit hole where they mention a thing that they assume that you have, and you're like, wait, what's that? And you look it up, and you have to do a whole other different thing in order to get that thing. Nerds are terrible at explaining stuff like this. The final boss was easy. I was just level 99, and I had the perfect infinite summon that has the special attribute, that which the final boss was only weak to this attribute. Yes, exactly. And shit like that is bananas. And this isn't just for games. Uh, in, in office work, it, this shit happens still. But in any case, I, I ended up in a position uh, late last night. I want to say it was like 11 p.m. where I had finally gathered all... To quote Wilhelm of Xenosaga, I had gathered all the necessary factors, and I and now I just needed to wait for the other one to awaken. And so I can report, at 5.40 a.m., I did finally pull Cosmos this morning, oh, <laughs> finally. Congratulations. <laughs> and totally fucking randomly pulled Cosmos. After 10,000 years. Yes, exactly. 4,000 years later, 
the uh, the what's the oh my god that is the, the opening uh, what uh, are they looking at in the intro of Zenitsaga one the Zohar yeah, the Zohar yeah, that's yeah, what it is yeah. the Zohar yeah oh um, the archaeological yeah, yeah 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 when it's a completely different art style than the rest of the game <laughs> yeah. oh, classic right um, but yeah that's that's why I'm sitting here exhausted because I I didn't get to bed until like six thirty in the morning so I was trying to get this fucking Xenosaga ca- uh, character I'm glad uh, you're victorious in the end yeah I mean you know it, it's it, it, the the strategy that I found was one of those where it just became a matter of time. It just became a matter of how long I could sit there and just keep doing the... Without getting too into it, um, it just requires finding a a boss with a lot of HP. There is a... uh, With JRPG turn-based gameplay, uh, one of the ways that uh, that developers can add spice to that gameplay is to have uh, attacks change the sort of, like, state that an enemy is in, mm-hmm. right? So if you played, for example, the Final Fantasy VII demo, um, you you might have noticed that enemies have stagger, which if you played thirteen, you, you you'd be used to that sort of mechanic. That's that changing of physical state is something that that um, uh, Xenosaga started to kind of play with. With I don't know how much you remember. Either of you remember the the battle system of, of Xenosaga two. Uh, that's all about trying to, yeah, I know, trying to uh, create your uh, break state for enemies to be in. Um, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 follows in that footstep uh, by instead having a sort of like a series of states you can put your enemies in. It, it's It goes break, topple, toss, smash, <laughs> or something like that. Um, and if you just do one of these combos all the way through, for whatever reason, in Xenoblade Chronicles 2, that also causes that monster's loot table to just drop. So you could just equip a, a low-damaging weapon for on everybody who's involved in this combo, keep doing that combo on a, a not-threatening but high-HP enemy, and if they're the right kind, they'll just drop legendary cores pretty consistently every mm-hmm. time. So you just sit there and you do it until Cosmos fucking shows up. Um, the, the, the real boon here is not just having a character who I like. The real boon is that the next time I decide to do a new game plus, I'll, I'll just have this at oh, my cool. disposal. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Um, but otherwise, you know, I'm pretty, pretty fine with <laughs> staying up to the wee hours of, of sit- Sunday morning. That's fine. This is, that's what weekends are I for. I mean, you lost an hour anyway. Yeah, exactly. That- we're, we're recording this. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I know. Right. Right. That's probably why I'm tired. Yeah, well, you know what? You know, you know who didn't didn't uh, wait an hour this morning? Diego, Diego the dog, the dog, <laughs> the machinations dog. I see him sleeping over there. Yeah, well, he can do that. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess even though we are we are all missing an hour of time, we we still have the the energy, I think, to to take us to the beach. Yeah, right? time stands still by the shore, right? <laughs> so let's go to the beach. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> All right, so that brings us into our conversation about Gurren Lagann this week, I feel like. Uh, where Before we got started, was there any anything you guys wanted to cover before we jump into that, or are you guys ready? I think the only structural comment I have about these two as a package is uh, Stephen Hero has mentioned before that there is a video game-esque sort of progression to this, and, yeah. I, f- and I feel like we entered into a classical video game progression sequence with these two episodes, because before we had... Big land machine, and now we have 
big C machine and then big air machine. Well, I, I, you know, I was going to bring that up and, and I, I don't know if this is just classic Ignis over sincerity, but I, you know, there's a definite fire earth water air thing we're doing now. And, sure. and this, this ties into just the, the, the four generals are already dealing with a kind of elemental theming, you know, mm-hmm. so that, that's yeah, part I, of it's it. not even necessarily that. I mean, it wasn't really, it was more just an observation than a criticism really. Cause it, you're also right. Is that it, of course they do tie into right. the elemental roles. Um, but yeah, that, that takes us into, Oh shit. I didn't write. I just wrote to the beach is as the title. <laughs> we're going to go to the beach. <laughs> Uh, but no, this one is... Um, uh, Yoko, Yoko, will you do me a favor? Yes, yeah, that's right. Okay, yes. Yoko, will you do me a favor? Our heroes with new resolve make their way to the enemy's stronghold. Despite rosy dispositions, one undeniable thing stands in their path. The ocean. While Liron is hard at work outfitting the Daigurin to be seaworthy, the Daigurin Don take the time to relax. Yoko is finding herself ill at ease, unsure of where she stands in the esteem of the group, often coming against Nia directly in comparison, regardless of her intentions. Soon, the Daigrendon is, more or less, ready to set sail, <laughs> but before long, they are under assault again by Adine. After some water physics-based shenanigans, Adine captures Nia and tries to force the Daigrendon to shoot on Simone and the Gurren Lagan. Yoko takes it upon herself to disrupt Seirun's hold on Nia with some skilled sniper shots, making it appear as though she was taking aim at Nia herself. The opening gives the Daigurindon the ability to unleash hell on Adina, finally ending her threat for good. Once again back on land and free of beastmen, Nia approaches Yoko for assistance with her damaged hair, trusting that Yoko will treat her right. So yeah, uh, we this is like a... Uh, 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 in the way that cold water in the morning feels good and not bad this this episode felt for me what did what did you guys think a lot tamer than i remembered way tamer than i remembered yeah yeah in parts i would say it's definitely not uh, it's too bad we live in hell world and and like i i can say this sentence and it be true um it's definitely not as horny as i've seen a beach episode be yeah this is really not like there's some it's really like half a beach episode too i remember to be a lot longer there are definitely some like choices in into what is like on the screen and like why it would be there but it's it's definitely not like i don't i wouldn't say any of it crosses a line really like the closest line it crosses is that the the digrandon appear to be grown men and and they're definitely like uh, uh, approaching Nia as like an attractive object, and and like I hesitate. Other than the nosebleeds, I hesitate to say it's a sexual thing as much as it's just like a. They do just seem to think of her as like a little sister, but that apparently doesn't negate the sexual part of it. <laughs> like it seems to be both in a way that I I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I can pass like a hard judgment on other than like. You know, I maybe wouldn't have, but it's fine. This is it, it's not really like terribly offensive, I would say. Um, Another cool thing is when they first see the ocean for the first time, because I've encountered this a lot with students who've never been to the ocean, especially working like in my past with elementary school students. That the, the the wonder that appears on their face where they see open water for the first time, an immense sea of open water, seemingly infinite, and you get that too. It just expresses again how betrayed some of these humans are living underground. They wouldn't know what an ocean looks like, and that was a cool scene in the beginning with the uh, Dari and Glimmy. Gimme, Gimme, yes. Gimme is the one who calls it a big puddle. Yeah. Um, which, you know, you're not wrong. I, I, Keaton being like, what are you guys, stupid? <laughs> um, it, it's fun to be back in Gurren Lagan 
land like the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this episode feels like we're getting back into a sort of like episode six feel. The that was the the spa the 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 um uh bathhouse episode. Uh, and while this isn't quite as zany as that, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's. It feels more like that sort of episode. Like, Simone is actually... Something that I, I thought was really interesting about this one is that Simone is barely in it. Yeah, I noticed he, that, too. He is n- not really the main character of this episode. It's very much a Yoko episode. Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, Yoko... Yeah, and then... And we're right. Yoko and Nia, I feel like, right? The, the, the focuses are sort of... I think... I think... If I had to pick one or the other, Yoko. Right. But, of course, Nia is important to that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, uh, for, for this particular occasion... Uh, Yoko is the one who is sort of trying to find her her spot, right? Like she has sort of. It's interesting because it's it's contrasted in a lot of ways. The two episodes we do are a piece in this particular regard. They're both about Yoko, like finding her space in the Daikurandon, even though she doesn't need to. Like she has a place, and that's kind of what these two episodes are about. But in a in a sort of subtextual way, mm. uh, or. I wouldn't call it subtext because it's like explicitly about uh, what the uh, the role of everyone in the Diker and Don kind of is in in like the background, right? Like Liron, if if Yoko wasn't the main character in a character development sense, which she is in this one, this one is about Yoko not feeling comfortable uh, and figuring out who she is in the group. Um, but it's also kind of about uh, you know. Explicitly, it's about the limitations of the the other team members when Liron is not around. Like multiple times, that issue will come up within these two episodes. Um, and then there are also both episodes where the the final climactic action has to do with communal response, right? Like the the way that the the Daigurendon come out on top in both of these episodes is. The, the entire Daigurendon coming together to do a thing along with Simone and, and the people in the Gonmen, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's the end of this episode where they just blow the shit out of Seirun and uh, uh, Seirun's like, well, you won't shoot your guns up here. And Yako's like... Actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. Yeah. We are very dumb. <laughs> um, uh, any, let's see, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> any thoughts on... The the uh, Kitan sisters. The Kitan sisters are the 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 sort of uh, uh, inciting action of of beach times in this one. Is there a um, there's something I, I I find uncomfortable about them in in the way that they are lightly characterized in the plot, but heavily characterized in their designs. Right? They they clearly represent three kinds of three types of women. Right? Mm-hmm. Y- you have like. Uh, the the uh, uh, oldest bubbly sexy one. She's like the the sex pot one, not because she's horny or something like that. Even though we do see examples of that, but just from the physical attributes, mm-hmm. right? Like in especially in anime, if if you are blonde and curvaceous, you're probably like American and usually like uh, I don't want to say sex crazed, but the, the the what they might do is have them be like more forward. And often that comes off as sex crazed, um, uh, uh, and then with um, Kenon, the the middle uh, sister, uh, she is as, like the demure, nervous glasses one, right? And and even in in physical build, she like represents a sort of in betweeny 
right? Because uh, uh, Kial, who I'm pretty sure is the youngest one, yeah, is definitely with her, that one sharp tooth. That's a, a visual indicator of of immaturity of of like a sort of precociousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the like, you know, I, I hate to be this physical about the way they're drawn, but like the physical body type that she is, where she appears younger, right? She doesn't have as as much. Uh, meets on her in the same way that her her sisters do. It's very clearly like, you know, if you've ever played like a visual novel, a dating s- a simulator, like a lot of the time this is how their characters are presented, yeah. right? Where it's like, pick your flavor, right? Where it's Coke, Dr. Pepper, Sprite, right? And, and uh, you know, f- I'm not saying that this is a problem necessarily. Um the story, this is something that is just true about, like, storytelling. The story can't be about everyone. It can't. Like, it, it, some people are just not going to be explored as much, not going to be given as much time to be, to contain multitudes, what have you. Um, and often, you know, critique is about pointing to where the story is is paying attention to and figuring out where the priorities are, right? Um, do you guys, when when it comes to the the Black Siblings... Uh, like, does any of that like occur uh, or not occur? But like, do you does that run through your your heads, or is it just like mm, they're fine? <laughs> I mean, I think what you mentioned does does come up, right? Because I think the visual novel comparison is really good. I mean, to tie it more deeply into conversations that we've had on Mechanations, it feels much like uh, our of one of our very Mechanation Zero when we talked about Gundam Wing. Right. We need one with guns inside. Sure, sure. We need one with you know extendable arms. Right, right. All right. We we need a bunch of girls. We need one with you know a big chest. We right. need one. You know, Ex- it, yeah. It exactly. feels very much like that. And in that sense, because we are consumers of this media. I just like okay. This is for for those folks, right? Exactly. Put it aside. You know, this is this is a gotchapon game. Right. This isn't for me. Right. Put it aside. So I I, I notice it. You know, whatever. It's I don't bl- if if it's something that annoys you, I don't blame you for getting annoyed. But like at this point, unfortunately, I'm like desensitized to it. Yeah, I you know, and just to, to to top that off a little bit, like just something I forgot to mention, some of these characters will get more to do in the future, and some of them won't, and and mm-hmm. that's you know that is kind of a shame, depending on how you want to look at it. But but Stephen, did you have anything you wanted to add? Now I'm going to echo PMC's thoughts here too, because in my mind, this could be my failing failings as a critic. They are very one note, so I don't really spend too much time thinking about them. They seem more commercial than some of their other counterparts, and I focus more of my analysis, particularly in this episode, on Yoko and Nia. Right. Which, if we're going to seg to that real quick, um, the one thing I will say in defense of a beach episode, I'm not going to bat for beach episodes in general. It does... The one thing that it does allow is characters to relax in their natural environment. Take out the lasciviousness. Sometimes it's just nice seeing them relax without the urgency of a fight. Right. That's all I could say good about this. The one thing that – so I did say earlier my mind is always attuned to when things are particularly commercial. And there is something very commercial about pitting Nia and Yoko, the two centerpiece girls, against one another. However, I get where Yoko is coming from and her frustrations, especially when you're a young kid. There are all these unwritten rules that undergird social structures right. that no one really acknowledges. Right. And then you have in your mind that you adopt this role. And then when someone else is you know, encroaching on that role, then you get offended, even though this has never really been established publicly or vocally and i get it because i felt that way before so i get where yoko is coming from so i kind of do give it a pass but i also do see like you know 
I talk about this a lot, but the hands of the right are petting these two girls together, you know, put butts in the seats, so to speak. Well, so it's interesting, right? Because on one hand, it definitely is that. Like, there's no question that it's doing that thing. But it is also kind of like about how unnecessary that is in a way. Like, the the text of the show kind of ends up being... So there's a moment later where um, the Digrendon are are panicking a bit because the, the Seirun is... Uh, or not the Seirun, the, the sub, whatever, Daigunkin, I think. Yeah, I um, think so. Uh, is dragging them down, right? And and obviously the pressure is going to... And, and so they're panicking, and Nia does it, right? And she's just like, don't worry about it. Simone's going to figure something out. And and I can't remember. I think it's Dayaka. It's like, what what makes you say that? And she's like, mm. but I, I'm sure he will. And and like you know, it, it's it's kind of a. So this is like a. I would call this a a like, uh, like Gurren Lagan moment TM sort of situation because this logic is the sort of like center of Gurren Lagan's like thought, right? Which is that, uh, you know. Sometimes you you just you have a like a, a gut feeling and it doesn't it's not necessarily informed by anything reasonable and that gut feeling is your sort of your Polaris when it comes to you know like that was Kamina's whole setup was like I, I'm gonna trust my instinct my instinct always leads me the right way and my instinct is is in this uh, hilarious overly sincere thing uh, and then I'm died uh, but you know. Um, and you know this this bit where uh, uh, Nia has this uh, belief that things will work out in the long run because Simone uh, will figure something out, or or they'll all come together. Like, because I would I would put forward that this I've been seeing a lot of Nia in this run through, watching it as much more. I don't want to say devious or sinister, but I I have a theory, especially regarding the next episode um, uh, with Nia and her ability to act in one way but be projecting a completely different kind of behavior. And I don't think she's manipulating people per se. I just think that this is whether this is a product of of something Lord Genome did particularly on purpose because he's he has kind of weird specific tastes, or or this is just Nia being like clever which something that we've discussed in previous other episodes like um you know uh, something they play as a gag in this episode is the reveal that Nia is actually very strong and and that she is well practiced in physical uh 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 activities uh and that i think t- i took as a sort of visual not visual but like a a, a storytelling like nod in that direction of like the whole joke with Nia is that it's a don't judge a book by its cover sort of situation. Um, and, you know, that sort of trust that Nia has and, and how little of it has to do with a sort of comparison point to Yoko um, is, I think, the the thing they're trying to illustrate, right? That, that Yoko... Yoko has this feeling that people are pitting her up against Nia. Um, and this is because the boys are teasing her the whole time. Uh, the boys minus Simone. Simone never teases Yoko. Very specifically, we are shown that even though Simone is in the group, he's not really participating. Um, he doesn't fight against it too much, but he's not the one who's teasing along with it. Um, and Yoko is susceptible to this sort of behavior. Like, she she definitely flusters easy uh, when it comes to this sort of thing. Um I think that despite her physique, I, I, I get the impression that she's someone who isn't incredibly 
comfortable about her presentation, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I, I get that read just from her choice of swimwear, really. Like, I actually, one, I really like her swimsuit. Uh, I think the color choice is really good with her hair, and I think she looks good in it. Um, but I think it's interesting that her swimsuit is is more modest than her normal attire, right? Like, I, I'm not really sure. Like, obviously, there's, like, visual humor in that. Like, there's the, that's kind of funny if you just stop and think about it for a second. And they call attention to it specifically. There's a great bit where uh, uh, Kitan and Yoko argue about the varying merits of showing uh, different amounts of skin, right? Um, I actually really like Yoko's modeling when she's <laughs> explaining, like, don't you want to leave some to the imagination? <laughs> um, uh, but there's something that, that uh, you know, a certain kind of person could take away from this whole... Like, like Stephen Hero, I kept thinking about you when it comes when it comes to these Nia episodes. Um, I, I always Nia is someone I would usually uh, Nia is an archetype which I would usually condemn pretty quickly. Right. But Nia, I have I have a bit about Nia later, which I'm going to save. That Nia surprises me a lot this time around. Even me as a critic, like, hmm, shouldn't it? normal you would be a little more critical here, Stephen, as I talk to myself during right. her monologue. But you know, I'm actually pretty cool with Nia overall thus I, far on my rewatch. I think that like there's. <sighs> I think in general, it's it's it, it's had more clever in, in places than it, it initially appears, but there are definitely still when you like scratch at it. There's definitely still parts of it that don't. It walks the line, as do many Gainax characterizations in general. Right. But there's often an added layer of depth which keeps me in, which hooks, which allows this to be acceptable. Um, I really do like also. Uh, I I love to shout out the dynamic that that Liron brings to the table. Um, Liron is very good in in this episode and the next episode. I think. Uh, I was gonna say that. Uh, I mean, first off, in real life, if you're if, you, if you're a single parent, you're a superhero. But I feel like Liron has very powerful uh, single parent energy, mm, yeah. sort of. You know, yeah. like I feel like he he is he is the the one parent. <laughs> he is. <laughs> He has all of the powers. It, it, in a lot of ways, I can the daywalker, the parent walker. Leron is increasingly becoming my favorite character of the show. Leron's a lot of fun. Uh, Leron is a character who, uh, in addition to being able to uh, 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 consistently treat the characters with like a like, he has more than one voice when it, when it comes to each of the characters. Like, and, and you know, I was particular about pointing out. Uh, where he he shows up in episode eleven, right? Because of to me, like that's the most striking reaction, right? Is is Liron's sort of knowing nod of like, oh, of course, like I, I knew you were going to make it here. That that sort of thing is very parental to me, right? And I think that's why I, I agree with that take. Um, but Liron, there are just so many like flares, and I love Liron's whiteboard sketch of the fucking Digrindon. I mean, the sketch is good, but like the actual appearance itself is incredible. <laughs> I, you know, I'm very fifty fifty on comic beats. I think early on in this series, uh, I was pretty down on some of the comic beats. It was it episode four was the one we all really didn't like, or was it it was three or four? The animation but, change was four, right? The animation change, but also oh, it was, but like, also it just wasn't funny in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the yeah. pink puffballs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas I think uh, things like like visual gags like this, like putting you know giving an oar in giant flippers, right? Oh, that's like, fantastic. It's great. Yeah, no, it's actually I'm like okay, this is really good, and it serves another purpose too because it makes the Daiguron seem like a member of the family where it was an intimidating force, at least for me. Right. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it follows through with what you were talking about during our last discussion. You know, like when 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 the Dagunza is like waving as it slides down the cliff, mm, yeah. and you know things like that. It, it continues to be sort of you know further uh, anthropomorphized. There's a critic that um, I can't remember her name, but she talks about aesthetic qualities in the 21st century that people naturally gravitate to, and she compares them like to an 18th century aesthetic categories: the sublime, the picturesque, and the beautiful. That's a whole other topic. But the the topic, the three categories that she focuses on: zany, interesting, and cute. And this show has a lot of zany and cute aesthetic factors, and the, the, the die Guron and how the die Guron changes embodies a lot of that cuteness or zaniness, depending on how you look at it. I, I think it's interesting also, especially to describe it as like characterizing the die Guron because it, it really it's becoming the embodiment of the the die Guron done as like unit, like yeah. it's the, it's it's their home and also their like the thing that bonds them all because you know. They lost Kamina to get it. You know, it's it's it definitely has become a a, a, a welcome sight for yeah. sure. It's right up there with uh, House Castle. House Castle is like the epitome of like li- those lived in feels. Like you know, the hanging your clothes up alongside it. This is almost at that level of homeliness for me. Right, I would agree with that. Um, uh, what did you guys think of the weird melon spider? What a nightmare! Yeah, what a what a goddamn nightmare! <laughs> a true like, why would you do that? Also, though, we already talked a little bit about Ania's physical strength. The fact that Nia is able to perfectly split a melon with a pipe, <laughs> yeah, uh, very concerning. Yes, that's, that's un- unfortunate. I also like Nia's ability to uh, be in an anime ending uh, sequence underwater. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of. I keep thinking credits are passing by. Yeah. She's sitting there in that uh, anime girl pose. Um, definitely doing the, uh, what, what's the character's name from Outlaw Star? Melfina? Oh, I, you could say anything <laughs> about Outlaw Star. I could say Kitaro Kitaro though. Do yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Exactly. The like, Galactic Legline. Yeah. Jim, right? Uh, the only the thing smart I, kid. the only thing I remember from, from, no, cause I think, isn't the name main guy like J- James, James Starlock or something like that? I don't know. I don't know for, <laughs> for Outlaw Star. This is but, my, my new, my new podcast within a podcast is I bring up old anime shows and ask you guys for names. Please name it's me not all James, the, it's not James Starlock. It's not James Starlock. No, James, I think is the, like the boy. Please, uh, please name me the main cast of Ronin Warriors. Oh uh, no. Gene no. Starwin. Gene Star. Okay. <laughs> Okay, but James Starlock no, is is you're, not. You're, you're not far up because it's James, but James Jim Hawking is the kid. Okay, sure. We're, so well, combined, we we got it. So Jim Haw- so is, that's a Treasure Island thing, then, right? Is I that think, what they're going for? I think, I think so. so. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. Well, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Anyway. Anyway, <laughs> the only thing anyone remembers about fucking Outlaw Stars, Aisha Clan Clan. Anyway, or so. that kick-ass OP. Oh yeah, da 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 da. Yeah, but yeah, no, I didn't watch fucking Outlaw Star. Um, <laughs> I I do know that uh, Gurren Lagann, Tengen Tapa Gurren Lagann knows that dolphins are assholes. Um, <laughs> big big uh, Red Alert Two energy. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> For sure. You guys, so if you don't know, Command and Conquer Red Alert Two was a I think like year two thousand or two thousand one. Oh, it might have been two thousand one because. Well, unfortunate moments in history. The original box art for Red Alert 2 has the Twin Towers depicted on it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they changed that mm-hmm. at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it was 2000, 2001 or 2000, maybe. And um, But anyway, the, yeah, there are dolphins that have torpedoes in their back. In Red Alert 2, there are dolphins which can destroy boats by using supersonic waves. Yes, that seems very, very Red Alert. Yeah, very similar energy. And also, dolphins are the only way to save ships that have been grabbed by Soviet 
squits. <laughs> yes, that's true. I, 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 my family has always said that. That has gone in the long annals of the Ignismatics clan. It reminded me immediately of the Trios of Horror from season 12, the 11th Trios oh, of Horror yeah, with the sure. dolphins. Yeah, with which, the murder dolphins, as, sure. Uh, Amishi's a big fan of the Simpsons and Western animation, so who knows? Maybe it's like a cue there. Not impossible. I mean, you had to equip something with torpedoes. It makes sense that's dolphins. Sure. Well, and or I'm, killer whales, either one. I, I was going to say there's also just a, a whole different sort of relationship to maritime. That's true. Animals in Japan, you know, as far as uh, I don't know, as far as the depiction goes or public sentiment. I just know that in general, there's a different sort of sense when it comes to animal relations. Yeah. I went to the aquarium in Japan on fucking maritime day. Awful decision. It's <laughs> packed. It was, it was flooded. It was flooded. Yes. A deluge. Yeah. Um. So we cu- we see now that uh, they are under attack by a DNA's forces in the Daigunkin. Uh, DNA is joined by Viral, and also a basic instinct reference. Is is that what that leg flip was? Is that was that? Mm. Yeah, that was real. There was a lot of time animating that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this, this basic instinct, or or I don't know. I think that's the movie where. Yeah, uh, no, you're right. Yeah. Uh, um, we we haven't talked too much about them. I know sometimes you bring them up when you feel like they're really relevant to the episode. But we got a nice like if you're a, if oh, you're interstitial if you're horny for a DNA uh, the we got a pin up you got a pin up poster for a DNA doing her her uh, Seirun bikini I guess yeah uh, it's actually those the those two are designs that um those were popular for wallpapers for a while those two interstitials yeah. were one I've I've seen a lot of um uh, we get my one of my favorite Attenborough bits we've we've discussed Attenborough before uh, he is the Muppety looking one of the, the that name is now like burned in my memory i know who immediately like attenborough yeah there's there's certain incident i would call them incidental digrown brigade members who will become notable for whether it's like tired guy or um reyna who we we see more clearly in the, one of the these next two episodes even though she's smoking in a working environment which i would not encourage but i want to see uh, more of her though she seems dope she's the coolest i love every time we get to see reyna i am very excited um we get a, a real quick dick joke, real quick, when the dolphins take off that little that little part under the water, and everyone is everyone has a little bladder moment, real quick. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just very Gynax. It's that sort of. So there's a very similar visual gap. I didn't get that at first. I had to rewind and go. What's the joke here? See what's going on? Yeah, it's only once you notice that it's all like dudes and 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 they're it's, clutching their crotches. Right. It's not. It seems like they all need to pee. That's what it seems like. They're and and maybe I'm missing the gag there. But what it, what it reminds me of is. A, a gag from the fourth episode of Fulikui, uh, mm. the baseball episode, where um, Haruko takes Naota to the top of a tower in order so Naota can hit away a meteorite that looks like a baseball. Uh, Naota is going to do this with a guitar that Haruko pulls out of Naota's head. Now, at this point, the semiotics of the guitars that are removed from Naota has clearly been established to represent some sort of sexual prowess of some kind. So when we cut to the uh, uh, Amarau's government organization, whatever the fuck those people do. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, uh, all of the female technicians have, have have bloody noses, right? Even though they're not, like, in, in uh, for whatever reason in anime, uh, uh, or no, in this particular, the joke is that they're, like, trying to play this straight, while obviously all impressed by Naota's... The in, in, inherent sexual prowess of some kind, but that's what it reminded me of. Where yeah. like the joke is a sort of like I don't want to say subtle, but it, the 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 text isn't really calling attention to it as much as it's just like you know here's here's a little visual gag for you. It's very gynaxy. PNC, did you? I feel like the gunman not functioning underwater is specifically for 
this that sort of verisimilitude coming into play in Gurren Lagann makes me feel like so so are there some some you know uh, Star Wars uh, militarism people in the back that that needed some some of this or you know I, I appreciate it as a reason why. I'm curious what in this magical world waterproofing entails. Like yeah. putting little floaties on. I, I mean, for me, I I see it and I know what it's you know it's it's in service of continuing to be like, hey, there's something special about the logon, right? And like, and, and that's and it's you know, and that's just how I I acknowledge it, like you know, because it's a is a common the idea of. Um, Making something suitable for water is like a common thing in mech shows. Right, I, th- I think it comes up in original Gundam, and I'm sure there's tons of other examples that people could bring up. Right, I mean that's part of why the um the 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 the, the Gyog is such a big deal, right? Mm, like right. That, that design is that, is, that right. whole that whole Belfast segment of goddamn original Gundam. Yeah, right. Um, uh, we also get a, a quick a quick shout out from from your boy Roshu, who's like. Well, we haven't really confirmed that, though. <laughs> it's, just like, it's very Roshi to say. Um, uh, Shout-outs to the Japanese voice actor for to of Viral, who is just fucking killing it. Oh, yeah, um, he goes nuts. So I, I'm still doing my thing where I, I first watched the English dub and then the Japanese, and I definitely, if I had to pick, like... Uh, like like an MVP Japanese performance from what I'm able to pick up, it's probably Viral. He really goes crazy, especially in this set. Well, so something that I I, I you know uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. Something that that uh, occurs to me when I watch the sub. There, there's a bit here where uh, he he's he's going to employ some arm cutters. So so he says arm cutter right, and in English I don't. So in Japanese, he says it in English. He's saying arm cutter. The English word's arm cutter. And that means something different than just having it be in English and then saying arm cutter in English, right? And and this is a small thing. It is. But a, a someone uh, who is speaking in Japanese, saying English words, has a different effect than something that's just in English, saying it in English. And there's no real way to adjust for this, right? This is just one of those foibles for, of adaptation. It's it's neither good nor bad, but, like, it definitely is one of those, like, little... Like, a feather that ends up on one side of the scale for me. Um, but, yeah, shout-outs to the, the Viral guy. He's fucking great. Um, uh, this is the moment where Nia keeps the calm that I referenced earlier. Uh, uh, Gurren Lagann is a beautiful show because that reasoning is good enough. Um, Simone's water drill. This is when that comes into play. Yeah, uh, you know, I I, I want to mention that. I mean, we'll get we'll get to it next up too. But one of the things that I I like here, I, I mentioned at times, I felt like I was struggling with some of what was being communicated to us, uh, kind of pre pre common of death about Simone's development. But I feel like now, especially after the uh, the the sort of grief mini arc, when we're seeing Simone really double down on what he's good at, you know. In in these apps, it's like, oh man, you're stuck under the water. What are you going to do, Simone? I'm going to do what I'm good at. I'm going to drill. I'm going to dig. Yeah, you know? fucking a. and this is going to be the same thing next app too. I, I'm actually, I was uh, in. We definitely going to talk about this next app, but I was curious how much the secondary pilot would determine how much like creative juices are involved. Because uh, you know, I was curious how much Yoko being involved in the next case mattered for. The, the next uh, event for Gurren Lagann. But we'll get there. Yeah. Something that I, I think is interesting is how... Um, uh, uh, I think it's funny that everyone was ready to assume that Yoko was just going to murder Nia. 
Um, I think that's kind of interesting that people made that leap. Yeah, because this is actually a situation where even Simone says it, right? Simone, she says, don't do it. Simone seems affected. I yeah. would I would argue that, that he seemed, like, shocked that she, she went there. Um, but I was surprised that no one was really willing to let Yoko work. Like, this is what she do. Like... Sniping a thing is very much her her comfort zone, and and you know it, I actually the uh, idea of of using Nia's princess hair as a sort of like cover for the real sort of target. Uh, I, I think it, it, on one hand it's going to set us up for the bonding moment that happens at the end of the episode, which is the thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Stephen. So we'll, when we get there. Um, but you know, it's it's one of those things that I for me this is part of why I almost want to position Yoko as like the main character of this app is is because there's a like the the sort of core drama of this app in a, in a lot of ways ends up being in this moment where we're not sure if Yoko is going to shoot Nia in the head so that we get a clear shot at uh, DNA right I mean we I, I would argue that you know. I, I, I have a bridge to sell you if you really thought that Yoko was going to shoot Nia, but <laughs> I, I'm saying in the in when we're talking about what the core drama of the episode is that that, that is sort of the the drama, right? Do you do you think that's unfair to say? Or I think it's about I right. Think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, because the the whole episode is building up an adversarial relationship where we're, we're we don't really land on what Yoko's real ass feelings about it are because she is young and builds up walls and, and wants to save face. Right. And so she doesn't really land anywhere. The last time we see it is a relatively like friendly sort of jibe moment where she accidentally spills the, the cartoon frog or cartoon crab that, that Nia made for her. Um, and here in this moment, like, you know, uh, Yoko is very much, if not Liron, Yoko is the most pragmatic member of the Daigurum Don, and and is definitely the one who. And I think this is probably where that angle I was talking about earlier came from. Is definitely the one who probably would shoot someone in the head if that meant saving everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I and I guess the like question that the show wants us to be asking is like, is Yoko jealous enough of Nia to just do that? And like, of course not. You know, we already brought up the the way that the Daigurum Don take out DNA this time. It isn't really Simone. Simone defeats the Daigonkin, but uh, it's really the Attenborough and all his guns <laughs> that finally get to... Oh, my favorite Attenborough bit is from earlier in the episode where he, he unleashes his his barrage and he's like, yes, direct hit. Every every shot hit. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, no, none of them. <laughs> oh, man. As someone with terrible aim, that, that, feels, <laughs> that feels good. Ah. Uh, but yeah, we 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 culminate uh, really in a in a small moment where Nia asks Yoko to to help her fix her hair. I wanted to ask because for me, this is the thing about quote unquote tropes, right? Is that they become tiring to come across not because of the the trope itself, but because of the context in which the the trope exists in, right? So. It's not so much that the trope itself is bad, although that can often be the case. It is that the trope happening in the context that it does is undesirable sometimes. Mm-hmm. Here, uh, the the idea that these the, these two very different women find a a a kind of bond of trust that is illustrated through the one trusting the other to give a good haircut 
there are there is definitely an argument about that being pretty trite and pretty like as far as like it's very young adult girl character e there is i i would say a pretty fair tendency for especially for someone like a lady character who is like pictured as i don't want to say butch or masculine or Mm. or or a protector figure um but when that person is allowed to be more feminine and allowed to to express themselves in some way like that it is often to bond with like another lady character and for some people this like super works this is a a true honest depiction of of bonding between two two women right and for some people this is like it's like candy corn right where it's just like obviously fake and and you know not representative of anything real and is largely to indulge the egos of the people who made it right that this is me being super cynical right Mm -hmm. i'm trying to create a, a a binary that we can very clearly construct right um when it comes to this, this being the like uh, emotional like points of the episode, which is that like these two get along, right? That they they do not have an adversarial relationship, and that Nia trusts Yoko. Um, did this work in the long run for you, or was it just kind of? Eh. I think this really worked because I think you know when we, what we're learning about about Nia is you know you suggested this earlier when you said that perhaps at times she could be you know if you're cynical about it manipulative but you know i think she's she's to the point and she will have a plan sometimes that plan is very simple trust in simone right uh but i think it, you know in this case you know she has she has a plan to sort of i think c- cement this to ease this relationship with with yoko and you know, here's here's an opportunity, and so uh, to me, because like sometimes you're right, you know, in all your description of this as a sort of trite thing to do, you know, kind of something that's common in the genre, but it it fits here, it works well. You're using it well. I mean, we, we talk all the time; tropes aren't bad, this right? Is, and to me, this is an example of you. Have, it is clear that the character would want this because you know characters should be something that we can relate to, and certainly sometimes we ourselves as people like trite things right. as you mentioned certainly for some people this sort of thing would work and i think specifically this character would want this thing which is maybe the most important thing to me right i i think that's a really good way of putting it that they illustrated enough of the characters like inner truth that this tracks for you 100 percent, it worked for me i have a lot to say about this actually but there's a lot of complexity in this scene because the haircutting can also represent an initiation into the group, but also a change for Nia that she's shedding her princess past. I'm thinking Final Fantasy IX with Garnett cutting her hair. Right, right. Wild it's, Arms Cecilia. You're, uh, also a great example, yeah. Cl- classic tropes, but in this scene, it definitely felt honest to me. And I want to touch upon something. I'm going to grab a, a literary quote for a second because yes. there's something, uh, something I'm teaching too. I'm teaching Gatsby. In chapter three of Gatsby, Nick Carraway goes to the party. And he meets Gatsby for the first time. This is the meme from the Baz Luhrmann film with, you know, DiCaprio holding the champagne glass out. I'm just going to read the passage from Fitzgerald's text. He smiled understandingly, much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. It faced or seemed to face the whole external world for an instant and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. It understood you just so far as you wanted to be understood believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that at your best you hope to convey end quote that is why i really like nia's because she represents this optimism this this really valuable quality in a person that 
They are rooting for you eternally. That is what Nia for me is. That's my read on Nia in this group is that she is – she's more than the – more than the group's rock. I mean, that earlier scene, too, and everyone's going chaotic in the bridge. She managed, briefly, manages to dissipate that chaos by just believing in Simone. And that's a really important quality. That's why I'm very generous with my read of Nia is because she has this quality. Right. She's more than just the rock of the team. She's the team's heart. She's almost like empathy personified. I think that's a really valuable characteristic, especially in a show as optimistic as this one is. Right. It, she definitely something that I think is is interesting about Nia is that the the show delivers her to us as a sort of philosophical counterpoint mm-hmm. to Kamina in a lot of ways, um, and I think that this this uh, her small sort of reason free belief in in Simone is a reflection of that sort of thing that Kamina also had, right? Kamina believed this in much the same way. It was just framed in a different way. It was framed in a way that was comical and, and uh, Kamina-y, you know. And for for Nia, if you really stop and think about it, even though it sounds silly, this is the only thing they can do. It is really the wisdom in that situation is trust that your friends are going to be doing what they're responsible for. Trust the people that you're supposed to be trusting, Right. Um, and in this particular bit, what I like about it is there is a, this haircut is a really fun and, and intimate parallel between the, the Nia trusting Yoko when she's in Seirun's clutches and Nia trusting Yoko when she's just cutting her hair to Nia is the same thing. It is the same amount of character trust, um, and that this last scene seems to be bringing that home for the audience, right? That this this uh, trusting uh, Yoko. First off, if you like, Yoko looks fucking good all the time. Of course, she's gonna give you a fucking solid haircut, right? Yeah, that ponytail like, from earlier looked good. Yeah, and and like you know, when we'll see in the next episode, Nia's new look is good. She fucking looks good in this in this sort of more cash. Like, like she definitely still looks like a fantasy princess. There's no way to avoid that with her her flower petal eyes and her and yeah, her, be- <laughs> like her magical hair. Like, there's no way to avoid it. But you know, um, there is a a simple like you know, it, it, it would be it, it is not impossible for me well to cut like PMC's hair right and and for it to be a thing that that could occur between us. This is not like. I like uh, uh, Stephen Hero and an RMX combined, and this is a, a, a testament to our way. Like we could do that, right? And and it would be it would mean something different, right? But the the fact that that is how these two characters are going to end this particular story with something as simple and and uh, what's the term I'm looking for? like standard like a mundane something as mundane as a haircut is but it's so powerful it's like catching i don't know fireflies on a summer's day with a net i mean you just you know what exactly you know when you see it you don't need a whole didactic explanation of why that's powerful right no i i completely agree though i i think it's it's one of those especially for you know i I don't know someone whose hair I've, i've just buzzed my whole life basically so like for someone for whom the way they present is very important, even if it's not something that they necessarily worry about a lot, like leaving that in someone else's hands can be scary for sure. I think that one of the ways that to to 
put a point on it is to say that we have in our lives uh, acts that are simple or mundane but carry uh, ritual levels of importance or significance. Mm-hmm. And I think haircuts can be one of those for the reasons of, you know, how, you know, your presentation or just, you know, progression in life. You know, there's all these simple things that we do to maintain our corporeal forms among other things or our mental well-being right. uh, you know they have elements of ritual to them ritual isn't just you know religious thing right ritual is you know what we do to to, to cope and i think haircuts one of those and i think it's part of why it's important yeah i cited this before but virginia wolf referred to them in to the lighthouse as little little daily i'm butchering it now but it's based like little daily miracles yes. something very close to that yeah no i think that is the phrase she uses um uh, but that that more or less brings us to the end of 13, doesn't it? That's mm-hmm. more or less everything. So, yeah, I guess we can... Or wait, 12. 12, 12. 12. On, onward to 13. Yeah, yeah, we are going onward to 13. Right. Uh, Do you ever see Rome? And there's one scene in Rome where uh, one of the characters who's actor, whose name I forgot, just yells 13 because it's a squad. Oh, it's yeah. 13. 13. 13. Yeah. Yes, I do remember that Very scene. Very moving yes. scene. Um do you want to jump off the cliff to White Castle yeah, first, though? Yeah, let's go ahead and leap off and kick White Castle in the fucking face. Ross, <laughs> you? Yeah, so feast. summarize to your heart's content, please. Yeah. <laughs> feast to your heart's content. Episode 13 of Taking Top of Gurn Lagan. Themilf, DNA, Guam... Only one more general left to confront. Cytomander is up to bat. Before the first encounter, Nia asks Simone what she can do what she can do to be helpful, since the rest of the crew seem hesitant to assign her any work. After she witnesses a scolding from Yoko, she's inspired to try and cook for everybody. Before everyone can enjoy a meal, Cytomander arrives with devastating air power. Yoko, still trying to find her way, wants to pilot the Gurren with Simone. Together they are able to circumvent Cytomander's air superiority by combining the Gurren Lagan with a flying enemy mech giving the GL some sweet wings. Before Simone and Yoko could take down the enemy fortress, they are intercepted by Viral, and after a fierce initial encounter, Viral is shocked to learn that Kamina has been dead since the battle at the volcano, and has been Simone defeating him ever since. Cytomander takes advantage of the distracted emotions everyone is having and captures Yoko, trying to force Viral to kill a defenseless Simone. However, Viral's strong sense of honor has led him to believe that he cannot defeat Simone in this way and have it mean anything. Unfortunately for all of them, they left the Digurndon alone for too long, giving them all the time in the world to come up with the most insane plan ever, to use the Digurndon to literally kick the fortress out of the air. After their victory, Yoko confesses to Simone her romantic feelings for Kamina, and Kamina acknowledges that he is known for a while. This hits Yoko in a funny way. Meanwhile, it turns out that the reason Yoshi was out of commission was due to Nia's cooking, which is extremely toxic and vile. Everyone is too nice to tell her it's terrible, but Simone seems to sincerely love it. Now, I don't cover it in the summary, uh, and we can talk about it later, but there is another scene after that. Uh, but I didn't cover it specifically because I have memory of it playing out in uh, in more... I could be mistaking this for a movie thing. It could be a movie thing, um, yeah. But I'm pretty sure the start of the next episode is going to kind of follow up on the the end of this one as far as the conversation between Viral and Lord Genome. I have memory it's of that. It's minor table too. saying, too. It's really, you need more context to really discuss it in depth. Right. Um, setting forth some questions. It just see, it felt like, to me, that the, the beat of Simone thinks Nia's food is delicious is like the mm-hmm. end beat right. of the episode, yeah, I would definitely, say. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I deeply, deeply relate to Yoko at the beginning of this episode. When Yoko comes in and yells at Simone for not having eaten anything all day, this is me 
Every time I hear someone of our generation talk about how they don't eat breakfast. Yeah. I love breakfast. <laughs> breakfast is great. And whenever I hear this, I'm like, how do you how do you sustain yourself? How do you live? How do you remain a physical being? Yes. Without breakfast. I hear you. Sometimes though it's hard to eat at 5:30 when I'm up. Like for work. Like I could get eat at 6, but sometimes as a teacher my morning is so hectic that I just say fucking. I so I and and not to like I, 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 one I agree with you. Mm-hmm. But I find my reality to reflect Stephen Heroes a little bit more than I'd like. I like a good breakfast. Don't I like a good weekend breakfast? I don't oh, have- sure. I, I mean, look. I'm obviously I'm not saying you're going to get a, a, a you know a fancy brunch every day of the week. Right. I I think for me, you know, I'm I'm at a point now where I live a very comfortable life of working from home full time, which certainly makes it way easier. Right. Uh, but. My memory of, you know, either, you know, being in high school, having morning classes in college, working in an office is that I would always take my my window after report to the office, okay, you know, an hour and a half, 2 hours depending on my commute time or whatever. I have to get up and eat breakfast the first thing. Right. Like I can't do anything else. Mm-hmm. I can't shower, I can't do this is the thing I have to do. So I understand you know, certainly how early you're probably getting up, Stephen, is probably very early, as you already mentioned some of the times. But I definitely, you know, this is like one of those things, you know, it, it's hard to know without knowing someone's individual situation. Right. But at the same time, when someone's like, oh, I can't do this thing, I'm like, well, we all make our own time. It's a matter of budgeting. You know, and so I understand you may really truly have countervailing factors that prevent you from budgeting. Right. But I also, it is a matter of budgeting. I I know. And I, again, totally, I'm on the same page with you. In a world where, for me, I, there was a little bit more, um, uh, space in my in, in the time of the day where I didn't have to be somewhere else. It'd be much easier to take some of that time and, have it for toast and butter right mm-hmm. um but and and there are just days sometimes where they're just is and, and that's for but i do think for a lot of people they just don't right because mm-hmm. it's and, and and i think you know there are people for whom like i know uh i know somebody who just has a sensitive stomach between the hours of like six and eight right and just can't really ingest anything until that point but Anyway, Simone should eat. Simone should eat. He's got some. Not, not I'm not calling him out here. He's got some downtime. We saw some montages with him just lounging on the deck. He could use that time to eat some food. So the the something else I wanted to shout out about this scene here, uh, where Nia is asking Simone like what she can do to be useful, uh, is this is a small moment that I, I thought was uh, uh, it's it's good in a coming of age story to have this kind of beat, but they didn't really focus on it, which I thought was like interesting. Um, there's a moment where Simone is trying to say, like, well, oh, I mean, hey, like, I, I see what you're saying, but, like, people don't really need you to be doing anything. You don't really need, like, if, if you're happy, which is what he meant, if you're happy, people will be happy. But what he said was, you know, if people just see you smile, I'm sure that will be enough. And and this makes me upset. The, the closest she's been to upset with Simone ever thus far in in this moment where she's just like, well, no, that's not really what I'm talking about. That that's not, you know, it, it's the closest she gets to, and and this is a sort of common, you know, you hear about this sort of experience that that uh, women in particular have where they're just not taken seriously, right? Like that that being treated like that sort of object is something that Nia has explicitly rejected in the text already, right? And not at all what Simone meant. Not even close. Simone just was just like, no, these people want you to be happy. It's fine. 
Um, but I liked that bit. That's, a, that's something innocent that a young person could say with the best intentions, but is definitely not... Not what you want to say. No. You would uh, be more attractive if you smiled more. Is, is not, not a thing you should say. <laughs> no, not a move. Um, uh, so, yes, this the, we, we cut to Roshi, who is, who is suffering as Izzy suffered in the Digimon movie. Uh, uh, that You just shouldn't drink Atai's mom's beef jerky shakes, because uh, then you will get the shits in the middle of the important battle with the Aboromon. Um, Originally, when I saw this, I thought this was art imitating life for some of the Gainax animators, because these two episodes look fucking great, and I imagine they worked very hard on them. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, there's a, This one in particular has a, a much more... There was something that was less exaggerated in the last episode, and I'm not sure if the, that has to do with the ending action beat with the Daigoren leaping into action, and they just needed that sort of more... Uh, dynamic, less literal kind of animation, uh, or if it's just you know, it, as often happens, it just depends on whoever's directing. That yeah, day, right. One thing I want to say, I, I talked before how I felt at times I had difficulty following uh, the motion of scenes. You know, especially like I remember episode one in particular. I talked about. I think here, and especially with the the end sequence of the the um, the, the jump kick, I'm going to call it. Uh, I, I actually I think I like this style a lot better when we're given those big exaggerated still frames. I think it right. You know, what it reminds me a lot. It reminds me a lot of the like the style of when Halo Reach was the most striking. Oh sure, sure. Um, that kind of like this is a big moment. Here it is. Soak it in. And then when you do have motion in this episode, the motion is I think motion that's. That's easy to follow and communicate. The the dramatic spinning of the wheel when they're reeling around for the other kick, you know, is a really strong visual that you know communicates what needs to be communicated without having to have a super complex, complexly you know, animated sequence with the, with the Daigonzin. And so I think you know I, I'm finding where I'm comfortable with the animation, and I think when it really works for me, I think this episode is an example of that. Yeah, I agree that the there is a, a really effective communication of, like, kinetic energy in this one. Um, uh, something else I, I liked in this episode, there is a, uh, a quiet beat where um, Yoko, after Yoko announces she's going to be piloting the Gurren in Roshu's absence, uh, she, she opens up the cockpit, and in the cockpit there is a a, a stenciling of the, the Daigurin on symbol the 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 one that was on Kamina's cape and Simone's jacket and and is the flag of the Dagger and Don and what I liked about how I liked about this moment is how the fact that this was in the Gurren is different than all those other versions of the symbol like she could see it anywhere that the flag is always is always up and and Simone's always wearing that jacket but this being here is different for her and it's different for Simone too and and I liked this beat um, it's the first time the the or not the first time, but the the specter of Kamina has not been around for a little while, um, and it, it's interesting for this to pop up here, considering where the episode is going. Like that's why it is here is to remind us that, that this space is still here. This is not something that like we're not over this. It's just that we've learned how to live with it. Um, 
I really like this scene too. I'm legally obligated to comment on all quiet scenes and all quiet moments. <laughs> yeah, and this uh, this scene really did it for me too. It reminds me too of my own life when my grandfather died. You know, I, I processed his death as best I could in the real time, but then also years later, or not years later, maybe months later, there was some like crackers from his house that I grabbed and I left it in the car. And just seeing the crackers was an immensely emotional mo- moment. Oh, there's, sure. There's a scene in Six Feet Under where one of the brothers, so the whole pr- the whole like one of the undergirding plot structures of the show is their father dies and they're dealing with the grief, et cetera, et cetera. He runs a funeral home. The non-Michael C. Hall brother goes to his father's boat and just being in that space that was used to be so intimately his, but then there's it, there's that lingering absence is very emotional. I got that got those similar feels too. I'm sure Yoko was flooded with a, a variety of sensory emotions or sensory details that really hit her emotionally. Um, I, as, I did like the scene. However... It ends poorly because it, it, it transitions no, immediately into a titty joke, which yeah. is fine. It, it, in, the, in, a, in a lot of ways, this is the most Gurren Lagan way this could have ended. And, and so, like, I almost don't want to hold it against it because this is kind of like the flavor, right? There, in that there is a sincere core that um, has, like, some, some titties taped to it, almost. <laughs> um, and, and, like, it, there's... There's definitely a, a like a time and day where this it, that kills the whole enterprise for me. As far as I'm like, you know what, I, this whole emotional beat is ruined now because of this. But it didn't it didn't hit me this time that way. I was kind of fine with it. Um, you know, something I want to comment on in terms of designs as well. We already talked a little bit about the action, but I found it very striking that the first time we see Cytomander's fleet, uh, if you had just taken that one slide. I feel like, it, you know, if you hadn't seen the show recently, it might be hard to identify this show at that slide as Goron Lagan. Yeah. There are later designs. The Al Bombers. Yes. Extremely Goron Lagan. Yes. You yes. know, once some of these individual bombers that look like stealth fighters or stealth bombers transform, very Goron Lagan. But I felt like the design of Cytomander's, uh, of, of any of the, the four big general things, I feel like Cytomander's uh, airship, the Diagonton? Yep. Gunton. Yeah, they, uh, you know, was kind of the like the most gen- generally sci-fi. Not bad, of course. I love I love a good floating airship. Who doesn't, right? Uh, but you know, I-, I thought it was interesting that this seemed like the most like straight ahead. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely agree that there was um, uh, until you see the uh, uh, it, like hand wings that the the, the mechs have, uh, and and they're like chicken pilots. Like it definitely looked more like it could have been a scene from Code Geass or something like that, right? Um, yeah, I, I like the action. The core, the core. I know choreography is not the best word I'm gonna use that anyway. The choreography of this fight seems phenomenal. It really engaged me in a way I haven't been engaged in a few episodes. It reminds me of Oscar's first appearance in Ava. Oh, sure. To find a unique way to fight on the battleships because Ava, Evangelion units can't fly, much like uh, the girl in Lagana until later. Right. So in Ava, they're jump. You know, she's jumping from ship to sh- battleship to battleship, immaculately animated. And same here too. It's very interesting how Simone eventually gets up there as he's piercing them with his drills and like. Like monkey, monkey barring his way across the sky. That was really cool. No, I think this follows up what I said before, just about that. The action is cool. This is all dope, right? But it also follows through on what we know that Simone is at his most powerful when he drills, and right? He, and he finds a way to drill, and it's awesome, and it flows with what's going on. I, I really dig the. I wish he was allowed to maintain the Spider-Man strategy for Same. a while. Yeah, like, I wanted I, that too. I, I dug this this. Um, but I also enjoy the the like. There is a um, fun action figure logic to the way that the the Gurren Lagann can continue to compound itself 
And the addition of these wings, there's something about the way that it completes it as a, like a frame that, and I'm not sure if it's just because at this point I'm used to, because it will keep these wings for the rest of the show. These wings will continue to show up when it transforms into Gurren Lagan. I'm used to looking at it with these wings and it looks more like the Gurren Lagan in my head. Um, I, and I just, the, the, the chicken pilot flying out, like <laughs> incidentally as it's being grabbed. I did also, I brought this up a little bit in the last episode, but I did stop and consider how much of the Gurren Lagan acting this way had to do with uh, Yoko being in the secondary pilot. I don't, I, I don't actually think the text is arguing that it did, but I like that as an idea. Um, it reminds me a lot of um, in Xenosaga 2, uh, there are uh, segments of Xenosaga 2 where you are in uh, the, the ESs, the mechs, um, and each ES has a primary pilot that cannot change. Um, that pilot will always remain the same. And then, but the secondary pilot can change. Um, and depending on who you have, a secondary pilot will determine what kind of role that mech is going to be playing in your pi- in your party. And and as a mechanical narrative exercise, the the idea that the different pilots of the Gurren might change the sort of fighting capability of the Gurren Lagan in particular was a, was a fun idea. Not one that they necessarily... They sort of play with that logic in this episode today, and we'll get to that when uh, we talk about the, the next encounter coming up. Oh, real um, quick, I did want to point out, we talk, I talked about earlier how I like the, you know, the Katamari aspect, like, you know, just grabbing a bunch of shit. There's a cool Marxist reading you could do of that as well. So just to give you a really small like primer for Marxism... You have the revolutionary working class, and the whole point is you want to wait till capitalism reaches its peak. That's if you strictly stick to the Marxist text. Once, like, capitalism has built such wondrous things, quote-unquote, then you will appropriate those means of production and use them for yourself. And that's essentially what they're doing as a revolutionary body, appropriating all these small bits and, like, like a catamaran, like, building it up. I think that's super cool. Right. I agree. I actually I, – I do think that uh, there is a, uh, uh, a distinct – decision in the movies to remove some of the communal aspects of their victories and which is i i do think takes it away a little bit from the overall effectiveness of of the work i i think it, it gurn Tapa gurn Lagan, the piece ends up working better in the long run when it's a, a revolutionary piece about the power of community yeah um that that's really where as a like uh, if you want to talk about the, you know, when I talk about how Gurren Lagann is like 60% sincerely good and 40% garbage, the the reason why that 60% sincerely good matters more is because of that that core sentiment, I yeah. feel. And and I, I feel like in both of these episodes, you get that, right? Mm-hmm. You get that their ultimate victory comes about because of all of them. And it's not just Attenborough. It's not just Kitan. It's not just Dayaka. It's not just old Coco. Who's who's you know shout out to old Coco in the last episode saving Nia, it 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 all ends up being because even Simone lost because of the the whole Viral. Uh, okay, so let's get there actually. So Yoko and Simone have successfully attached a oh there is a fun Looney Tunes moment, <laughs> but that's during the Viral fight actually. Let me get to there. So they have successfully obtained the ability to fly. So they're on their way to do, go uh, battle with the 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 airship that Saitomander has brought. But they are stopped in midair by a new flying-type Enkidu, and Viral and his theme song is also here, Nicopol. Viral, at this point, is still trying to have a... a so in, in comic books, because it's a, 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 a visual medium, a still visual medium, there will be 
moments of action where exposition must also take place, where characters are undergoing actions that are deeply strenuous, but also having entire monologues, right? This is, this is just, it's just, it's going to happen with comic books, right? And, and I feel like this is Varal's only mode is, is this. I'm actually sliding off a bit of Varal because he's in my mind, like I like the added layer of complexity we got a few episodes ago, but now it's like, for me, it's very villain of the week, one note archetype where for me, he's kind of got, I, he deserves a distinct purpose. Don't get me wrong. But for me, I'm like, okay, this shit again. Oh, really? Yeah. Because I, I, I would agree with you if not for where this episode goes. No, it takes us a little far that I agree with, but coupled with the last episode, I'm like, all right, here's Varel. Uh, oh, sure. In the last episode, he's, he is very much like your, uh, okay. So in the last episode, he's, he's a Jesse and James, right? He's, yeah. He is a, a step below an actual antagonist, like someone who, that's a good thing to call that archetype, but Jesse and James, right? Where they, they are an, an adversarial force, but they are not threatening. They're not going to actually do any lasting harm, like period. Um, but I, I think what's interesting is that in, in episode, 12 we had the jesse and james but in episode 13 we have something more of a javert sort of situation where we have someone who is uh, a fanatical in a particular pursuit of a goal um but now is confronted with a situation where he realizes that goal was ephemeral that that there's nothing it's too late that that and not only was it too late but like it happened a while ago and and it had so little impact on him that it didn't even realize it happened um uh it, to and i think there's there's a lot of really interesting character beats here where viral they've they've landed in the airship and viral kind of has them at his mercy right there but it's there where he kind of realizes that gamna's not in the gurn lagan um and it's simone i really really like that it was simone who was able to say that that Kamina is dead he said those words because um, there's a bunch of beats where I was afraid that Yoko would say it for him, which would be an understanding or understandable beat, right? Uh, especially for a, a someone like Yoko who is an older person who cares about Simone's emotional well-being and, and is on the same sort of page, right? That's something that I think is really interesting about Yoko and Simone as, as a unit is how how much of their emotional journey they're both on, right? They're both kind of on the same sort of emotional track. But Yoko struggles to let herself have that sort of conversation with Simone. And and not necessarily out of a disrespect for Simone as much as it's just like difficult, I think, to for her to recognize that that bond, that similarity that they have. And not until this end beat, I think, where she admits her emotional vulnerability to Simone and is confronted with the fact that it's much like Viral and and his sort of like the monkey on his back being Kamina and how that is something he's completely made up. Y- you know, Yoko and her sort of emotional turmoil about how she relates to Simone is something that is she's carried alone, basically not something that Simone has particularly held against her. Shit. I lost track of what I was going to say. Oh, Varel. So in this moment where Varel learns that Kamina has been dead since the battle of the volcano and that it was Simone who's been defeating him every time. Well, not every time, but the times that Varal has shown up in after the Battle of the Volcano, um, there is a lot of things that suggest about Varal's motivations until here, right? Because it seems like this the seriousness of all this all maybe never hit home for Varal until now. 
Um, it makes me wonder how much of this has been a game for him that he didn't realize was a game until this moment where he realizes that he doesn't want to win in this way, that it, it's not about beating Simone like in any particular way there, it has to mean something to him, mm-hmm. right? It has to be a, a straight up. And, and, and the thing that I think is interesting now is the question of does Viral even care to fight Simone? Like how much of that is something that he is, has a real like, personal conviction in right because his relationship with was with with Kamina like he was the one he met in the field there when he shot that great Pippo um uh he's barely said a fucking word to Simone even though we the audience are aware that a lot of their victories against Varel have to do way more with Simone than they do Kamina um this to me is it, it like it's again in a lot of the same ways that the the scene where Yoko and Nia bond over a haircut it being too trite too to uh a well-worn to to really hit home for some people um i can see viral being hit in the honor here uh to quote one dante bosco um for that to be effective for that to get him and and for it to work for him to put away his his hatchet his mohawk hatchet um when saitamander demands um saitamander by the way how, how do we feel about the shuzak it's cool. It's got like the like, arms are a little bit extendy, you know, which is which is always nice. Uh, it kind of look like a bat, like with the arrow features. It reminds me of what's uh, I put in my notes, but I didn't play Pokemon Moon Lun- Lunala. Lunala. Yeah. yeah, it does look like Lunala. That's not unfair. Um, it it uh, it reminds me of a a Code Geass sort of design yeah. in the elongated arms. I I don't know if that's just because of Clamp, and I just think of like noodle limbs for Clamp. But <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say about this though? Oh, and obviously Shusak being a uh, Suzaku, but different. <laughs> <laughs> Suzaku, Ignis just chucked something across the room. Um, so <laughs> on the bottom of his shoe, like gum. Yeah, uh, the this moment where um, uh, uh, Viral, this you know, is, uh, basically declares to side commander, like fuck your style. This is my style. It, it all is thrown completely out the window anyway, because like I said in my summary, they they left the the the, the dinks alone for way too long. Um, and so they did something insane. Uh, but I, 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 this sequence is great. It, it's a joy to see uh, something as goofy as the the dagger and move in the way it does. This is so good. And like certain characters get some great money shots. Yes, I'm thinking of. I had to look up his name, but it's one of the older guys, uh, Gable Docker. Oh yes, where the dramatic wheel spinning. Yep. That, that was, was really good. Hundred yeah. percent fantastic. Yes, yeah. There's. Uh, it's very. I was thinking about you, Stephen Hero, specifically because it's very. Um, uh, naval wartime novel oh, action yeah. beat. Like it's not Master Commander. The Master Commander is not that. Master Commander is more serious than that. Mm. Although Foxholes and Bowsprits yes. and Mizzen Mass. Yes, exactly. Like it's it's a and like PMC was describing earlier, it is a extremely effective kinetic sort of beat. Like it really puts you in that that sort of capital R romance of that sort of mm. uh, uh, control over an enormous machine, right? Um. That, that woman engineer, what's her name again? Reyna. Reyna, cool. Yes. I want to see more of her. Yes, we will. She, unfortunately, she doesn't get much in the, she is one of my favorite, what I call the incidental, uh, the, the Brigade. Like, uh, in the last episode, there is a guy who has an unbelievable pompadour who, who, yeah. who looks like he, he's, <laughs> uh, from, uh, gosh, what is that? It's not Gynax. It's a, it's a, 
Oh, what is it called? It's a racing show, but it's not a show. It's like a specific special. Fuck, I forget. Oh, what it's the called. movie uh, Powerline or it's, Redline? It's or... Redline, Redline. Redline, there That's you go, it. yeah. Um, he, he looks like one of those guys. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of just... Uh, there's like the incidental ones who will never, who don't really have names, but show up multiple times. Mm-hmm. There's the step above that, which like Reyna and the... Uh, Gable Docker. Da- Gable Docker. <laughs> And uh, some of the other, like, you could even put Irak or Zorthy, who are ones we see all the time, but don't really get to, like, do stuff. Mm-hmm, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, not in the way that, that Jorgen and Balimbo will always, because they have a particular, like, shtick, they, there will always be room for Jorgen and Balimbo to show up. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm impressed you have these names down. Well, this is just time and interest in the show, and I've, and I've fucked it up before. If you listen to previous episodes, I've mixed up Jorgen and Balimbo's names and... Uh, the, the, these other guys are the main ones who get named, right? Like, I, I never remember bald guy's name. A quiet bald guy, you know? Mm. Uh, th- and uh, there's another one who I forget. Anyway. Raina has a real world weariness, like, as almost as if this is a nine-to-five and she's just clocking in as she, like, smokes her cigarette. She reminds me very much. She seems like she's an alternate universe version of, uh, God, what's her name from fucking Evangelion? Ritsuko? Ritsuko, yeah. Yeah, she seems like an alternate universe, uh, like, less yeah. fucked up version of Ritsuko. Yeah. Um, uh, well, maybe. I don't know, yeah. actually. Right, we, we got more to discover. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's very much the feel she gets. Just, you know, like, someone who's someone who's got shit to do, yeah. right? Like, who doesn't really have time to sit here and listen to this. Um, and I also really like uh, Attenborough's <laughs> yoink when they grab the fucking the the, the uh, uh, floaty orb, yeah. and how excited Leron is about it. I, I really enjoyed those beats. Oh, I didn't call it Leron's yellow umbrella the last episode. Really great character shot, just awesome. Oh yeah, there's a lot of uh, and like you know this is something that this is part of why when we when we started to discuss Leron, I, I wanted to kind of hash out where where we were with him because there's a lot of distinctive style shots with Leron. Yeah. Like, there's there are bits where Leron and the way that Leron presents with the shot just looks fucking cool. Yeah. Um, and, and it has to do a lot with Leron just being comfortable in his skin, right? And us as an audience being, like, understanding who Leron is. And so when he has those moments, like, where he tells Gimme that the, the ocean is salty because it's full of women's tears... Uh, you know, it is like it, it follows with the rest of the way that he he teases the the Digurin Brigade, but it, it, at this point, it's become something like, oh, Liron. You know, it's one of those that I'm actually like happy to do instead of like, oh man, yeah. <laughs> which is how it normally goes, you know. So, the Digurin Don is victorious. Um, we didn't talk about it much, but Simone and Nia are are cute as hell in this. I mean, they've been cute as hell. They they've. It, since Nia has shown up on the scene, there's been a lot of good, I would say, um, s- not subtle. Subtle's not the word. When it comes to doing young people in it, figuring out romantic relationships, there is a young adult novel way to do it, which is to say, uh, generally kind of uh, obfuscating emotional conclusions because you're trying to mimic a young person's lack of understanding of how to negotiate the world emotionally or you make them total clown shoes right it's so hard from the perspective of a writer it's because then you 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 go far in one direction it's like too artificially created to you can't put your mind in that headspace right miyazaki's really good at writing hayao miyazaki miyazaki's really good at writing kid characters like spirited away 
great uh, just writing for kids in general. Well, so I, I think one of the ways that, that Miyazaki gets away with it often, and that's how I would describe it, because none of the movies, well, except for Howl's Moving Castle and Castle in the Sky and Spirited Away. Never mind. I'm full of shit. Many of his movies are explicitly about a romantic connection. <laughs> um, I immediately saw Spirited Away when I think of that, too. But right. this, this, this has a lot of Laputa vibes, this episode. Yeah. yeah. And, and what, it, what I was going to say is that they, they, don't, they don't force – not force. That's a bad way of putting it. The, the, the situations that these characters end up in – aren't your uh, uh, ones where the audience is forced to think about them in a romantic context. It's not like, um, you know, uh, famously there are lots of like what people might call like fan fiction prompts, right? Which are situations that where the two characters who wouldn't necessarily be in a romantic situation are forced to engage in things that seem like romantic situations. So, for example, oh no, we both got caught out in the rain. All of our clothes are drenched. We'll have to dry our clothes in in the nude with each other. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that sort of thing. Um, and I'm not saying that Gurnagon deserves credit for not being that straightforward when it definitely has treated the uh, sort of romantic union between Simone and Nia as like, I would say at this point, like foregone or at yeah, least inevitable. But let's actually, I'm going to step back a little bit. Let's say some kind of union between Simone and Nia as, as inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. Let's pretend, you know, I would argue that, that there's a romantic bend to it at this point, even now, but I think there's something to say about, having those kind of strong bonds and it not being explicitly romantic, right? Um, you know, I, we'll learn in the long run. This is me trying not to. I'm trying to do what we do for all our shows where we try not to talk about it, even though we know what's happening in the future. But, you know, with Grown the Gone, we've definitely let it slide a lot already. Um, but the way they do it with Simone and Nia is, is the, it's just the touches are, are just mundane enough that it works for me in a big bad way. It just, it definitely emphasizes how they complement each other more emotionally than, than as like aesthetic units, so to speak. Uh, it just, it, whenever they're just spending time with each other and they just look happy, it just seems nice. I'm, I'm very like into any of those moments, basically. Um, were there any other points we wanted to discuss from this? I feel like the because uh, I, I I want to end it on the Lord Genome Viral conversation. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that I skipped? Well, I mean, so one thing I just wanted to bring up real quick. I just had a comment about Viral's development this episode. Viral very much strikes me. You know, typically in in our existence, twenty twenty, there's a lot of um, I guess positions or or factions that I think we tend to assume our bad faith correctly assume our bad faith mm-hmm. actors. Mm-hmm. If if you are telling me about deficits, I'm going to assume you're a bad faith actor. Right. That your your true goal is somewhere else and you know that saying this there, it, there are things that are dog whistles for things. Right. If you talk about law and order, sure. That's mm-hmm. a big dog whistle. Mm-hmm. I know what you really mean. Yeah. Once in a while. I'm kidding. You're making a serious I, point. I'm sorry. And but sometimes you run into poor, sweet, naive souls who have been trained wrong as a joke. Y- yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they, they grew up in bad faith society, but they want to be good faith people. Right. And that very much is how Vril comes across to me, is that he, is, he, he, he really truly believes that beastmen are the chosen ones. Right. And you know he's acting accordingly. 
but when he sees that, you know, Cytomander doing what power does, which is keep power. Right. He's like, well, wait a second. I thought, you know, we were big, big time honorable folks. Right. I thought what we were doing meant something. Right. Like, and so I, I think it's it's interesting to see that Viral, and again, we know what's going to happen, but to see it happen in real time is is important. Well, there, and, and this is something I, you know, uh, this is why I, I sort of had the reaction I did when when Stephen was talking about how he was, this was starting, this bit with Viral was starting to, to run a little bit old for him, was that I, I, I feel like I appreciate all this time we're spending and how it is concretely affecting him, right? Like, yeah. it, it is... You know, earlier when I just compared him to Jesse and James in the last episode, I I, I chose Javert from from Les Mis, the the Hugo novel, and also the the, the musical. Um, do, you, do when I say Javert, do you guys know what I'm? I, I just don't want to go off on a. You're good on a. Okay, yeah, I unfortunately I mean, just have Russell Crowe in my mind, but you also were talking <laughs> master. Right, I, I I've kind of I've been around you too long, Ignis, so I think I've I've picked up on a lot of Les Mis things it, because of that. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so what I mean by that, there is a particular song that Javert sings at two different points in in the play. If we're talking about the musical, um, in when he sings it the first time, the song's called Stars, mm. right? And and the song is about in general, how sure he is about his just position, right? How positive he is about what he does and the rightness of it. The second time he sings it is after he's realized that he's been trained wrong on purpose as a joke um, and that uh, all cops are bad. Uh, and so he, when when uh, confronted directly with an example of something that he believes could not exist, which is to say uh, someone who has committed a crime who is also a just person, it breaks his sense of reality to the degree that he kills himself. That is the the conclusion of the second, the reprise of stars. Um, uh, please, please, please look up uh, uh, original cast recordings the, of this song in particular. They are good. Um, but the there's a particular guy who does Javert. I cannot remember the gentleman's name. Anyway, 25th anniversary version of Les Mis. That Javert fucking slaps. But anyway... Uh, this I couldn't help but think of that when when it comes to this moment because the to me like instead of jumping off into the canal like Viral instead puts his sword away right like he for him instead of like instead of ending the his entire life he he's instead decided like okay there's been a fundamental misunderstanding here. there's something that that is completely missing from the way i understand the world to work so he goes with cytomander to lord genome because he knows he's going to get i don't know what the fucking equivalent of beast man treason is but that that's what happened mm, right he yeah, yeah. objectively refused to carry out some orders that cytomander directly gave him and so cytomander brought him to lord genome the spiral king the highest authority in the beast man land and Viral is like What's up? What what is this? Like, what are humans? And Lord Genome in in one of the like, Lord Genome has been really weird. Let's been like let's let's be explicit about it because and this is actually something I wrote down earlier because I brought up the topic of his his harem right. Mm. Um, in this episode we see or maybe it's the previous one. Um, we see the harem responding to inquiries he has right and the way that he does it in in the japanese performance they are very robotic in the way that they respond right and it's very like it's like data that they're reporting um which kind of feeds into that that thing i was asking where i was like are these real people or are they some kind of like 
digital construct of some kind. And we see here, um, when he's speaking to Varal alone, that, that Lord Genome has some kind of projection ability, right? And the way that this is, is represented is with a drill. And now we know what this is. And we've, we've talked about it before that the show will eventually reveal that this is spiral power. Right? This is a, a core thing to the show that basically is what allows its logic to proceed. And, and we will figure out what this is later. Uh, but this is Dragon Ball Z shit that we have not really seen before. Um, and it sort of helps position, you know, we've, we've uh, complimented the show before on its ability to escalate. Right. Um, and the, the, the trick with escalating is, is, uh, figuring out how you can get away with it, right? Like, how can you actually convince the audience that you actually escalated this thing, right? Because and we will have this conversation because this will come up. You can tell the audience that it's 10 million zillion times bigger than the last thing, but getting the audience to intuitively understand that is a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. And, and showing that Lord Genome is like magic, or whatever the fuck <laughs> is is a step towards that escalation, right? This is a different thing we're dealing with. Um, we also learn that the Beastmen are in fact gargoyles, um, and they, they instead of uh, uh, going to sleep with the sunrise and and awaking at the, at sunset, it is the opposite. They don't turn to stone; they just fall asleep or they die. Um, I know many people for whom this is also true. They just must be Beastmen. <laughs> um, um, but this ends on a cliffhanger of, of sorts for Viral anyway. He, he asks Viral, uh, Lord Genome rather, asks Viral if he really wants to know what humans are, um, which suggests that there's some aspect of humanity in the show that we may, the audience may not be aware of, maybe, or there's some other, you know, something that we take for granted that Viral needs to understand. Um, something else I wanted to shout out, and this is, uh, apologies for jumping back and forth mm. in, in the point of the episode, but when Simone and Yoko are uh, telling com- uh, telling Varal about communist death, um, there's a particular track that plays there um, when we see the moment happen again. And they use this track in... There's a series of short music videos that were released with Gurren Lagann mm-hmm. called Parallel Works. And these parallel works are... They vary in what they are, um, some of them are alternate reality sorts of just takes. Um, there's a really the first one is a really cute like fantasy take on Gurren Lagann where you see like a, a knight Kamina and Simone in some like hero fantasy outfit and you know a bow staff fighter Yoko. It's cool. It's just a cute music video, real mm-hmm. quick. Parallel Works Eight. Okay, if you are someone who is following along at home and in are trying to receive the story in the most straightforward to understand way i recommend not doing what i'm about to say um but if you are at all curious about the backstory of lord genome uh there is a canon parallel works parallel works eight that uses this song um to do the backstory of lord genome i would say wait until 15 or 16 whichever one is the point where once you reach the end of part one of Gurren Lagann that is when it is completely okay to watch this. I w- I, Cause I will say you will get some machines spoiled from you. Some, some mechs will show up in this that will show up in the future. And the, some of the identities or where these mechs could be would be uh, spoiled, but worth your time, especially if you're someone who is interested in visual storytelling and how you can uh, 
uh, convey an emotional story with no dialogue. Um, but that kind of brings us to the end of this sequence for us, right? Um, this was pretty fun. Well, let me... I started this discussion with the thing about food, and let me end it with food, because we Real get... Quick, Norm Lewis, Javert. Oh, is that the, the 25th? Yeah. Yes, yeah. he's great. We get the best comic payoff in the show so far. This is very... I got very PMC vibes from uh, Rossi, who's uh, like very <laughs> empirical, like detective work, like where yeah. was I at this time, just working through everything, very PMC Philip Marlowe-ass shit. Yeah. <laughs> I have a theory about this, because I, I forgot. So you're right, because yes. what we do is, in our victory, we will go and have a feast, mm-hmm. and Nia has prepared a feast for the Daigarindas. Yes. However, it's garbage. It's awful. It's all terrible. <laughs> Except Simone loves it. And this is my theory. I've talked about how Nia is is uh, a constant um, don't judge a book by its cover. I just think she made everyone else's food shitty. Mm. I just think she made the good food for Simone. <laughs> she just made everyone else's food shitty because she knew she could get away with it. Because <laughs> if the Roshiu incident taught her anything, it is that people will literally poison themselves for her. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is why I don't necessarily feel bad for Roshiu because this like and this was a good good learning experience for him. This nice guy TM shit is is not a good move. It's gonna it's, get you into trouble. Yeah, it's not gonna be the way to proceed with interacting yeah. with other people. Honesty, even when it hurts, is often good, especially when it comes to with food. Also, you can couch it like it's food is basically impossible to fuck up. Like once, as long as it's edible, it's fine. But anyway. Uh, this bit is very good. Yeah. And no. Roshu's explanation <laughs> is it's a classic Roshu comedy, I would say. Yeah, it's very good. It reminds me a lot of all of his beats in episode six, where he's constantly trying to get people oh, to yeah, be yeah, reasonable. Yeah. Constantly. And going and, off on his own like little detective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is so fishy. Yeah. Mm, too fishy by far. But yes, um, we, we, we did celebrate victory with a feast where everyone suffered but Simone. Um, and I actually, I believe this will be a recurring gag. I think it will. And I think there's something, you know, if, if I was going to like piggyback this off of what we were discussing earlier, I, I, I sort of like the way this emotionally reinforces their bond, right? It, it, it you, to have like Nia express herself with cooking and for it to make perfect sense to Simone, I don't know. I, I like that as a fictional idea. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, I don't have any problems with it. Food bits in anime tend to fall on deaf ears with me sometimes. I've seen so many food jokes before. Mm-hmm. It's like the classic anime trope. Like, let's make him laugh without offending anyone. Food comedy. You should yeah. Like, Goku just, like, downing ramen or whatever he's eating. Rice, usually. You should watch Shokugeki no Soma. That's not the bread show, right? What's the bread no, show? That's, um, that's, uh, 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 Yakitare Japan. That's the one you're thinking of. No, Shokugeki no Soma is um, if you have heard about the show where people try food that's so good that they uh, that all of their clothes explode I off was about and to they ask orgasm, you if this was that show. It is that show, okay. yes. Anime? Um, yes. Uh, very, very, very. Um, it, I would say if... Okay, so this is the thing. We, we on the show have been critical about... And, and I wouldn't say critical. I've been critical about horny content. We have been. And it's because horny content is for a specific audience. It's not for everybody. It really, really isn't. <laughs> it's, um, uh, but having said that, th- I think there's a time and a place. And if you were looking for something that is, uh, is on the trashy side but enjoyable, Shokugeki no Soma is that. Mm. It is, I would describe it as, as trashy but good. 
you know, th- these things exist. I'm trying to think of other, like, ones that I would sincerely recommend, even though they are trashy. Like... For me, Studio Trigger really toes this line. I, I guess so. Yeah, I guess this is really where that that kind of. But I, for me, especially Gurren Lagann, and I, I don't. I'm know not. If that's, I'm not looping Gurren Lagann on that. Right, though, I would agree that Trigger is for sure that like Kill a Kill is that to a T. Like Kill a Kill, I, I would. I'm burning bridges in our audience saying this, but yeah. uh, Kill a Kill. Uh, mind a lot of the emotional technology of Gurren Lagann, but none of the substantive technology of Gurren Lagann. Perfectly said. Um, uh, but anyhow, that's a different show, probably. Uh, where? Let's see. I didn't look too. I didn't look ahead. I think we have another a joint uh, offensive that, between Guam and Saitomander coming up, mm, probably. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, because they are still alive. Both that's of true. them have survived. Both of them survived. Yeah. Um, and I believe it, it is. We are on the cusp of the final assault on Teplin. I mm-hmm. think that might be happening in fifteen. Yeah, that sounds um, right. We might. We might see that best mech design in the show coming up there is a mech i would say is definitely if you ever wanted to see what a male ava would look like i think the 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 mm. a mech coming up is yeah. the closest argument to what a, a i i don't know if that's a spoiler i guess that kind of is mm. um but you know it uh it not for Gurren Lagann. I meant for you. For Ava. Yeah, no, I, I got you. I got you. I got you. Um, but in any case, uh, look forward to that. Yeah. that there are some great designs coming up yep, still. Yep. Um, with that, I was one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox. Steven Hero. PMC Trilogy. And you'll catch us next time when we're not at the beach.